This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Morning. Um, yes, hey, Dr. Carr, how you Hello, doing? Oh, Professor Hunter, I'm fine. How are you? I am awesome. It's been a while since I've seen your amazing face. Oh, uh, the same here. I miss you, although I see all the clips on YouTube. You've been talking to all these authors and folks that are making change, and it's, uh, it's a remarkable conversation, and I'm glad that momentum empties into Saturdays now, and most importantly, on narrative. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining up. Um, we're about to do we're about to do some things I'm going to talk about in a second, but you know we got to have balance too. So I was watching while I was in the sauna, still sweating. Uh, Ted Ted Lasso, and you know just as a reminder that you know the pressure that we apply uh, on people to get it right, mm-hmm. you know, it it doesn't matter about a person's quote unquote race because we know Mace is a made up const- made up construct. So right. it's important that we you know have all of the people come in with. Uh, pro-history, pro-fact, pro, doesn't matter where you come from, we just got to be committed to telling the truth always. So uh, the last episode of Ted Lasso, there's a Nigerian soccer player, football player, um, and he was being sponsored by an airline that had oil connections uh, that were raping Nigeria. So his father was like, you're an embarrassment. (laughs) And then he was like, I didn't know. So he taped over the yeah over the sponsor and the sponsor threatened of course to pull out and it's the biggest sponsor but you know it it speaks to the corruption in nigeria i mean it was like all in this episode corruption mm-hmm. in nigeria mm-hmm. and i was just reminded that we all have to do our parts you know no longer can we say well republicans buy sneakers too we have to Ooh. pull that yeah, I remember that <laughs> yeah yeah and then this episode is a christmas episode I, and i'm sorry i've just i've just finished watching it and um so he's coming over to white guy's house for christmas and he's like how do they uh how do you see christmas in your you know how do they celebrate christmas you know in your country he said uh how do you see christmas as colonizers <laughs> col- yeah so he's a colonization and i was like oh okay all right Ted oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right that's where we are. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a white man coming down your chimney and not getting uh, shot or arrested for breaking and entering? Come on now. As, as the great Naeem Akbar used to say many years ago, the psychologist and professor Naeem Akbar, he said, you know, it must be quite a head trip they put on black people to have you work every day of the year and then tell your children that a white man brought them their gifts. <laughs> you paid for all those gifts under the tree and then you told your children a white man gave it to them. <laughs> Is that though, which is which is why the narrative is so important that we get it right because for I mean we all grew up with the myth, but of that's course. what we're here to talk about. I wanted to of first course. of all say thank you. This is the seventy fifth uh, episode, which seventy five. You know it's um, ordained by God when we land on the live episode number seventy five, which is also kind of a landmark episode that we've reached, and uh, it's mm. amazing. The last couple of years, us doing this year year and change, um, just the growth and and the 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 team and the people that are coming, and we are launching a social media platform next month, and we already have the beta, so we have a couple of couple hundred people in already. But you have yes. to be a narrative subscriber to be a part of it. Yes. And I find my- I, sent, I sent my first communique. Quite impressive, Professor Hunter. And not quite ready to tell people the name, huh? No, well, I'm going to tell you what the name is. You can't find it unless you were part of narrative. So it's called Nubia. Nubia. Nubia, yeah. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Well, that's quite impressive. Yes, we are. We're a Nubia. Uh, but I find myself, Dr. Carr, you know, being on social media, we have to, I don't know if you are, but I'm guarded. Like, I'm I'm thinking, like, I'll write a tweet. We're doing drops in Nubia. Y'all could tweet wherever you are. We're going to drop some gems. Yeah, leave the birds alone, because, you know, in the Nile Valley where Nubia is, those uh, the birds that stand in the Nile, the, the, in the Ibis family, that is the parent bird for the concept of Jehudi which is the creator of writing. So, you know, we couldn't go with Twitter. That, that little bird is, uh, yeah, that, that little bird is smart, much too small for what we doing. Come on. <laughs> so, so, so the drop, we dropping in newbie. Dropping, we dropping. And <laughs> I'm finding myself still guarded, you know, like I know it's mm-hmm. our face. we can do whatever we want. And I'm like, who, who could see this? You know, like on Twitter, I'll write something and then I'll sit with it for a minute. I'll just tweet recklessly, you know, because, Everybody's watching. You can get canceled. You can get thrown off the platform. We can't get thrown off. And I'm still like, oh, wait a minute. Let me, what, you know, I'm still finding my way, finding my footing. It's weird to be free. Like, I bet bet the first days of freedom, the, you know, people still had mm-hmm. that bondage mentality. So I'm still working through it. I just want to confess that. We are. We are. In fact, we should mention, when you mentioned that, the uh, think of those images of those first days of coming out of enslavement in the United States. Uh, the two two of the children's books authors who we've raised one more than the other as an illustrator, but we know that in the last week, the great Eloise Greenfield, who was actually here in the Washington D.C. area, made transition. Uh, so many books. Uh, her children's book on Paul Robeson is, is in here somewhere, uh, but she's done so many. And then, of course, the great illustrator who we've talked about several times, uh, Floyd Cooper, who did those uh, those more recent books on Tulsa and everything. But I'm thinking about when you said those first days of freedom, I was looking at one of his children's books on uh, the black folk who built the, um, the White House and, you know, his his technique communicating the sense of not just I don't want to use the word dignity because that is all life has dignity. Like Dr. King said, all work has dignity. So the, the humanity of our people and imagine that moment when you received the news that those people who have you captive up there in that house don't have you captive anymore, or at least that's what you're told. I think it's probably disbelief. There's a sense of, yeah, okay, so who's going to enforce this? And for some people it was like, oh, cool, I'm out. And we see all those things represented and the full range. So yeah, I think those first steps in narrative with Nubia now completely, you know, constructed so that we can have conversations with each other and uh, that beautiful, beautiful phrase, uh, self-determining, owned, we own. You say, you don't, you can't cancel us. You know, the bots, you're not coming in here. Now, everyone can join, of course, but you got to join to be in the conversation. Yeah, the first steps are going to be like, really? Can we? No, really? Can we? Yeah, you can. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's a little scary because with freedom comes responsibility. Right. So I don't mean be reckless. It means govern yourself. It's so funny. I was having a conversation with uh, one one of my former students who is at just a brilliant, brilliant scholar, our own educator, builder, and we were having a conversation, and uh, the concept of Ifa came up, the Yoruba tradition, and the idea is that you know th- there's not a concept we don't articulate reality in terms of good and evil. We articulate it perhaps in terms of light and darkness, ones and twos. If you're in the Odu Ifa, you know, with that one stroke representing one side of the cowrie, two representing the other side, the concave and the convex sides of the cowrie. But the, but the long story short is there is always chaos in the world. 
Now, the, 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 the ancient Egyptians might not call it chaos. They may call it isfet. And in fact, chaos is not really a good word. What it means is that the forces that exist, exist. The, the question always is, how do you live with them, react to them, interact with them? And so it's always on us. That's where Iwa, the question of character, comes in. What is your character? And, and, and you, you uh, this morning, as you know, I was sitting here reading, thinking about some things, you reached out and said, okay, we got to put this front and center in our conversation this morning because this happened in the wee hours of today. And it's an example to hear about people and many African ways of knowing in terms of that category in our African studies conceptual categories would say, you know, you can't stop these things from happening. The only thing you can do is control what you do. So whether it's dropping uh, on Nubia or reacting like our, our kin are doing in the Caribbean Sea, you know, what comes, what you can do is what you can do. The rest of it is going to happen whether you interact with it or not. So what, what's going on down there? An earthquake, you know, and I, 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 I didn't drop. I should have dropped, though. You know, well, we could treat and drop. But yeah, dropping increasingly is getting there's more and more people joining up. <laughs> but yeah. So what I mean, what Haiti woke up to, you know, a 7.1 on the Richter scale uh, earthquake mm -hmm. devastation. And, and you think like you, you talk about this chaos, but there's something spiritual, too. And I'm not sure you know, how to, you know, articulate what what is happening because it shares space with Dominican the Dominican Republic. And there were a couple of people that came on my timeline from the DR and it was like, we felt tremors, but not that. But it's the same landmass. Mm -hmm. Why is this keep happening? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wonder, you know, if there's some sort of universal, maybe whatever was summoned to freedom. I don't know, Dr. Carr, and I don't know if this uh -huh. is had a conversation well, but it should be had but perhaps not here no yeah well not not here maybe completely but but you know you can't stop it i mean at the end of the day it can't be stopped i mean and you know i think there is something to the 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 geography of that island of the high place as as id comes from um the island that the Spanish and the social structure and their social structure are called Hispaniola. There's something for that. I mean, the crimes against humanity that were created on that island against the indigenous people uh, of the region, the Taino, the Arawak, the Carib people, the the brutal ongoing crime against humanity called enslavement and its afterlives. You know, there's a bill to pay for that. And, and then the question becomes, well, why do we have to suffer? Well, we had to suffer because we're here. You can't avoid suffering in life. The question is, how do you deal with it? And, you know, I remember many years ago in a book, Lewis Gordon, the philosopher edited called Existence in Black, Paget Henry, uh, philosopher um, at that time at Brown University, wrote an article where he talked about how this Western way of knowing what I'm calling way of knowing what he might say worldview or world sense in, in Western style Christianity would introduce this notion that there's good and evil and if you don't do what we say we will condemn you to burn in hell forever and once you instill that in the mind not of the africans who you enslaved initially but and not perhaps of their children but as generations are born into that system without having that momentum of memory they begin to uh adapt to that uh that way of knowing and worry about you know, they come as they say in the Bible, they come running saying, What must I do to be saved? That's because you've set up an impossible choice. Mm -hmm. And you and you've set yourself up as the power. Now in Haiti, I think it's a little different. You know, when you see Vodun 
and as the old as the old joke goes in Haiti, you know, Haitians are uh, 99% Catholic and 100% Vodun. Why? Because those ways of knowing are all there. They're just coming. You know, the people have become quite flexible and adapt adaptive. And as Jacob Carruthers talks about the irritated genie or Wade Nobles talks about the island of memes. The idea is that whatever this 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 trauma, whatever this, whether it be natural disaster, whether it be constant interference, whether it be black folk in that governance structure, the Haitian governance structure struggling to throw off oppression and try to build something while they're being attacked. And there's been an unceasing attack. That's why uh, Randall Robinson wrote his book, An Unbroken Agony, because there's been an unbroken assault on Haiti. What you see, though, is that out of that, the character of the Haitian people is a remarkable example in human history of resilience, of determination. And that earthquake, if it's a 7.1, and that's what the early reports seem to indicate, then that's a more intense earthquake than the one in 2010. And, you know, the one in 2010, of course, we know that there were 220 to 300,000 people who were killed, a million and a half people injured, another million and a half left unhoused. But we understand that in the countryside, that it wasn't as, as devastating as in the cities. And this one that hit today, about 100 miles out of Port-au-Prince, you know, we see that while that is a natural phenomenon, we also understand that the prime minister of Haiti right now, Ariel Henry, is handpicked by what do they call it, the uh, the core group. I love how uh, the social structure likes to narrate itself. Who is the core group who vetted and said, yeah, we want this guy instead of the other guy? The United States, Canada, Brazil, Spain, France, the European Union and the United Nations and the Organization of American States. Now, meanwhile, the African Union, with all its flaws, had debated and considered perhaps extending uh, a form of membership to Haiti years ago, but the AU ain't at the table. You don't see Africans. In. Now, all the people on the island were snatched there from Africa, but you got them being dictated to by these white boys and their uh, clients, like the Organization of American States. But why is that important? Ariel Henry, who is the prime minister now, he was the guy over public health during the cholera outbreak that they had where they lost uh, uh, 10,000 people, lost their lives, another 800,000 uh, got infected. And he was the public health guy in charge in the earthquake. And he's very he was very close to Moise, the assassinated president. So what you have in Haiti is, a, is when this earthquake hits, you've got the challenges that Haiti has because of the constant interference, meaning what? Faults and hazards maps. They have them now since 2010 because they've been trying to ramp up some form of being able to anticipate where these things might hit and where they might hit and where they may not hit. The University of Haiti graduated its first classes of Haitians who have masters in geology because you got to have an indigenous group of scientists who can begin, begin to track and look at these things. But in terms of there's no national disaster plan because the government has been basically eviscerated and destroyed and in terms of earthquake resistance, bi resistant building, according to the scientists uh, and, and folks and administrators, folks who have studied this, up to 90 percent of the buildings in Haiti don't meet any form of earthquake standards. Well, you don't have a government who can inspect or enforce inspections and the budget of the uh, Bureau of Mines and Energy, that's where geology is housed in Haiti, in terms of the government, is roughly speaking around just a little over $600,000 and over 80% of that is in salaries, meaning they're un they're unfunded. But how do you build that back? Well, 
they just postponed elections. We just got that news in the last few days. They're going to post, they say they're going to postpone it to November 7th. This earthquake may push it back even further. And that's presidential and parliament uh, uh, elections for the legislature. Because remember, there's no legislature in Haiti. That was before Moise got killed. And then they're going to have a constitutional referendum. What's going on in Haiti is what Naomi Klein and others would call disaster capitalism. This is another moment, another earthquake. Remember, after that last earthquake, here come Bill Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, Hillary Clinton and them. That money's still sitting in somebody's pocket, earning interest or being stocks or wherever. Hasn't been rolled out to build any of this infrastructure. And then you put a guy like Ariel Henry, a, a medical doctor who was trained in France and the United States, went to Boston University, close to Moise and vetted by this core group. And also part of an informal, I say informal uh, group called the, uh, the Council of Sages. After they took out Aristide again in 2004, this guy was part of a group of people who ain't nobody elect, who's in constant conversation with these external forces. And is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? As John Henry Clark say, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. It ain't no bad guys. It's just complex human beings. We want to talk about that a little, a little bit later when we talk about uh, Brother Loeb. But in the case of Haiti right now, this natural event, this natural event, this shockwave, literal, that's been sent through with a 7.1 and then a 5.2 aftershock right after it. This, this, this is one more disturbance that the Haitian people will demonstrate their character again, their resiliency, and perhaps it will interfere with the best laid plans of these disaster capitalists. But one thing's for sure, we can't allow ourselves to turn away from Haiti we can't allow ourselves to uh, not be connected, not be aware, not act when we are informed. And we certainly can't allow ourselves to, to uh, turn on uh, white facing mass commercial entertainment media and look at image after image of people suffering and crying and think to ourselves, oh, we must do something. And then look and see people saying, we're going to pledge this money. We're going to bring this in. No. What's your what's your non-government organization? What's your NGO? If United States government getting involved, what you going to do? People say, well, you pay tax dollars. That means you need to inquire what is going to be done to help the Haitian people who have been interfered with since they declared that they are not going to be enslaved anymore in, uh, in August 1791, Black August. So uh, it's, a, it's a crazy way to begin our conversation today. It is. Um, but but important. I mean, we yeah. talked early and as soon as we got off the phone, I was like, what? What's <laughs> going on? Because, um, you know, we were going to have a conversation about journalism, which we will. You know, there's, there's uh, um, the, the, the Taliban. You know, let me just, I'm going to blame you for this. Because uh, I, I, can't, I can't watch anything anymore. Not a documentary, not a movie. I can't wait to watch Aretha Franklin. Uh, when it comes out on streaming, because I'm not going to the movies with Lambda, Delta, Delta Zeta, all the other. I'm go ahead with that. I'm not going out in the streets. But, you know, I'm looking forward because I'm like, oh, Audra McDonald. Um, yep. it, it looks amazing. Or it looks amazing. Yeah, that's a good, um, good, good cast. But, you know, I, everything I'm like, mm, is this right? Is this true? Is this real? So oh, you know, well, we know that's not. We know it's not. You know, I, I, the Taliban is raging. We pulled out our troops, but I was like, should we have been there in the first place? And why did we go? You know, it's just, it's just so many questions I have, you know. Mm -hmm. And then are we getting the right news? Because, you know, we know during World War II, now it's come out, you know, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, Black journalists were the ones that said, this is a crime against humanity. 
Black journalists were the ones that said, what we just did to those folk in Japan was inhumane and horrible because America and the New York Times were saying, oh, this was humane and, you know, they died a peaceful death. It was Black people that said, no, that's not what happened. So I'm going to need some Black folk to tell us what's really going on in the Middle East or whatever we call Africa. Ah, yes, 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 yes. So um, now I'm popping out. (laughs) No, 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 don't, don't, no, no, don't go anywhere because you know, as as Clark said, in some stories it ain't no good guys. Um, so, you know, I think I think back many years. I guess it's been twenty years ago almost. Uh, Immortal Technique and Most Deaf and Chuck D and KRS One did a remix called the Bin Laden remix, and uh, the loop was uh, Bin Laden didn't blow up the projects. It was you. <laughs> Tell the truth. Bush knocked down the towers. It was you. And then uh, and Immortal Technique is on the track. And uh, when they come in, you know, it's like uh, one of the lines is uh, Bin Laden was a CIA tactician. <laughs> Remember Bin Laden coming out of Afghanistan fighting Russia. In many ways, uh, you know, the, the colloquial phrase used to be that um, uh, Afghanistan is Russia's Vietnam. You get bogged down in a proxy war and you can't defeat these folk because they're fighting for a way of knowing that they've embraced and you're fighting for political reasons. And so you have to kill all of them unless you're willing to kill them or do what only the United States has done to date in human history, which is explode a nuclear device on them. And the United States did it not once, but twice. And they didn't do it on white people. No, no bombing of Dresden or Berlin or, you know, any of those things. You know, they go drop on Japanese two times. But. You know, you 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 you're you're bogged down, and the United States saw very much value in, in in doing that. And so, interesting enough, that Bin Laden remix, I think about it because what they do in it, what these uh, hip hop artists do, is flip it on its head, and they say, you know, if another party invaded the hood tonight, there would be warfare from Harlem to Col- to, 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 to uh, from Harlem to. Uh, the heights. And he said, we would turn it into a Colombian jungle. There'd be war in the swamps of Louisiana. In other words, if you attack the people in their home, they're going to fight you back. Now, does that mean that they want to live under the type of concept of Islam, the version of Islam that is grouped around the Taliban? No, but it does mean they don't want to be oppressed. And when you look at the history of Afghanistan and you look at the proxy wars that have been fought there, those people have been under perpetual assault from different people with different ideas about a number of things. But we know and and Joe Biden, I was reading um, today's New York Times or 15 cities slip out of the grasp of Afghan forces. And it's interesting because one of the things that you hear the United States now saying, of course, they're going to withdraw 20 years over a trillion dollars, over a trillion dollars. Uh, going into the pockets of a number of different people, including private security and private entities, you know, with Trump's defeat uh, a few months ago, uh, you saw the uh, the deposing of Betsy DeVos as the secretary of education. But her brother uh, was the founder, is the founder of what used to be known as Blackwater. You know, all the millions of dollars of contracts that flowed into uh, Eric, uh, whatever his last name is, uh, first name is Eric. I remember that um, his pockets and the pockets of other contractors, including those across the river here at the Carlisle Group in Northern Virginia. So the idea then that 
there are good and bad guys in Afghanistan. It's difficult. Remember the, everybody holding up the little stained finger after they voted uh, the first president uh, of, of Afghanistan that was brought in after the United States imposed itself on Afghanistan. And again, all this time, bin Laden is not in because the the, 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 uh, the alleged reason to invade was, of course, chasing bin Laden and looking at client states. And, of course, they skipped over to Iraq whole time or much of the time. The man is in Pakistan, uh, but they also have the bomb. So I can't you really can't just really roll up on Pakistan like that. So, you know, eventually you go get the guy. But, you know, who knows how long anyone knew where bin Laden was or wasn't. But the fact of the matter is, um, as Chris Hedges, I think it was Chris Hedges wrote the little book, War is the Force that Gives Us Meaning. The idea of war and warfare is one of the organizational logics, in fact, perhaps the central organizational logic of the modern world system. Not just military warfare, economic warfare. Some people will call capitalism economic warfare. You take as much as you can and damn any concern for anyone else. Profit, profit, profit. Well, in military, uh, unlike warfare in many cultures in the world, because there's always been conflict, but, you know, warfare might mean you pick your 10 best or your 20 best or your 30 best warriors. I'll pick my 10, 20, 30 best. They're in contest with each other. And after that, whoever wins, OK, you your side won. And but no, this whole concept of putting everybody on the field and launching them at everybody on the other side. You know, that's a that's a form of barbarism that requires you almost to demonize your opponent, to dehumanize them. And so when we read the narratives in the Western newspapers, they're going, they're looking for good guys and bad guys because that's the kind of thing people want. That's the thing people have been trained to want, to consume. Black and white, good and bad, all this kind of thing. And so it puts a us versus them. And of course, there is no us, like there is no we. And they say, well, we invaded Afghanistan. Did you go? Now, the irony is that's probably truer, a truer we, a closer to accurate we than many other we's because the people who are doing the shooting look closer to you and me disproportionately black and brown people and people who are low down in the class structure who are using military service as a way to try to advance themselves and their families and their communities. And then they're forced halfway around the world to fight people who they couldn't tell you who the sides are. They just know they shooting <laughs> made you look. You're a slave to a page in my rhyme book. That's the, who's got the rhyme book is the is the government's is the United States government. So they send you to Iraq. They shooting. Ah, made you look. Yeah, you're a slave to a page in my rhyme book called the New York Times. Or for that matter, you go, well, I'll come back to this in a second. But yeah, yeah. Look at this. Thousands of U.S. troops head back to Kabul. This is from yesterday's Washington Post. Americans, local allies to be uh, extricated. When I read that headline and then read the article, in the back of my mind, I keep thinking Vietnam. Vietnam, mm. Vietnam, because look how look at look at what happened. Right. And, and the reason I say I'm going to stop, because the other thing on the uh, on the cover of the Washington Post was the map showing demographic changes that will be reflected in the numbers that the census, uh, the census let out. And you can see there at the bottom, the headline from the from the post was first drop in U.S. white population. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we'll come to the census in a minute. Now, he's the first drop in oh. Oh, That's all right. Don't say nothing. Wait, no, we... <laughs> <laughs> Woo. All right. So, you know, it's interesting as you're talking. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Barbara Lee yesterday. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, we did a pre-tape for my radio show. And she, um, when I look at the vote, and this is like four days after 9-11. Oh, yeah. 
you talk about character and you talk about, you know, somebody who stood up and against everybody. She everybody. was the one. We're talking about 600 Congress people. 600 Congress people, the entire Senate, all voted to go to war and give this president at the time, or all presidents, power to do whatever they wanted. This one woman stood one. against that. And everyone, she said, calling her, John, oh. Lewis, uh, Cl Clyburn, everyone saying, no, 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 you got to go with it. We got to be unified. And she was like, this is wrong. It's wrong morally. And I cannot stand up and give, because she saw around the corner. That's right. And That's what right. you're doing every every Saturday and every day that we commune and narrative is making sure we have the tools to know what's right and wrong, what's truth and not. And and also you press us to have conviction and character to do the right thing in the midst of it. At least you do that for me. So I just want to well, just pause in a moment. May we all have the same courage that a Barbara Lee has to stand up and say, this is wrong. This is wrong. So I just wanted to, you know, as you talk about Vietnam, that's we right. need to yeah. people like Barbara Lee to say this is wrong. This is wrong. Well, the, you know, it's interesting you say that, Prof, because first of all, that's a, that's going to be a hell of an interview for us to hear. Uh, second of all, politicians are not our friends. They're politicians. And I think Barbara Lee reflects that. Well, the, all politicians reflect it. All elected officials reflect that. And the reason I say that is because, yes, she is an individual. When you look at Barbara Lee's history, you look at the Bay Area. You look at her work in public health. You work, look at her work in community as an organizer, as someone who worked. And I, I don't like the word grassroots as much as community. But you also look at the the, uh, the person who preceded her in that seat, uh, Ron Dellums. And you realize the anti-apartheid movement, Dellums himself coming out against war during the Vietnam era, coming out against the United States official policy in uh, South Africa, which was apartheid. Nelson Mandela, Winnie Mandela, Oliver Tambo, Walter Sisulu, Masa Sulu. I mean, they're on terrorist watch list because, you know, why you got cowboys like Dick Cheney, this lone congressman out of Wyoming who is sitting in Congress voting for the uh, African National Congress to be considered a terrorist organization. You got Ron Dellums fighting back. And that doesn't mean everybody in the Congressional Black Caucus, Black Caucus fought back at the time. More of them fought back then than perhaps would now. And that actually ties to what we'll talk about in a minute with Charles Loeb. I mean, it's fascinating conversation that we're going to have about that but barbara lee represents not just barbara lee she represents the people in her district and the sentiment that she came out of the community she came she in other words the governance structure she came out of even ron dellums himself his father was a member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters and Chambermaids. In fact, there's a book around here somewhere I, like a, I couldn't put my fat finger on it right now about the history of that first black labor union in the Bay Area and how is it C.M. Dellums? I had to look his name up, but was uh, one of the founders. I mean, so there's a tr there's a tradition of working class struggle. There's a tradition of black struggle in the Bay Area. And uh, of course, you know, so when we think about the current vice president of the United States, uh, we certainly have to reflect on the fact that her own mother, Shaimala Gopalan, and uh, uh, thank you, Karen, C.L. C.L. Dellums. Yes. And uh, she was touched by that working class and that black and brown organizing tradition when she came to the United States to go to school at Cal Berkeley, as did her father, 
uh, Donald Harris, uh, an economist who took some of that uh, uh, some of that sentiment, along with his training as an economist, uh, back to Jamaica. It certainly in terms of writing about what kind of progressive politics had to be engaged in, at least when it comes to retooling economy. So when Barbara Lee, you know, when we see Barbara Lee, you know, we often think of politicians the way we think of movie actors or comic book uh, villains and heroes. In other words, we think about them acting solely. Uh, as individual actors. But Barbara Lee's character is emboldened, supported by, in fact, the fact that the people in her community, including those who vote for her, insulate her from uh, the type of weakness that many politicians who rely on, uh, let's just say, perhaps a little bit more diffused uh, sentiment from people in their districts and therefore have to rely more on things like dark money. Jane Mayer just wrote a very interesting piece on the 2024 elections and 2022 elections and how a lot of this dark money is coming in already, just moving, moving, moving. We see these politicians talking, a lot of times it's the funders. And so Barbara Lee, to, 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 to what you raised, by herself, as these people were bunched up on the steps of the U.S. Capitol singing God bless America. Now, I mean, you know, it's, come on, man. Come on, really? But she stood against. But that district has a history, has a history of doing that. And so here we are in 2021. Uh, here we are, folk. You know, it's not Saigon. It's Kabul. And the troops ain't leaving out of Saigon. They're leaving out of Kabul. And so what's going to happen? What's already happening? And you read it in the papers. And you, you know, remember, everybody knew the Taliban was going to take over Afghanistan because in some places they never released control. Other places they've reclaimed. The only question was how long it was going to take. And now the uh, the so-called fourth estate, which is what they call the press, is saying that the government says that, oh, we didn't realize it will be so soon. You've been there 20 years. You spent a trillion dollars. You knew. And in two years, six months five years, 20 years, 100 years, if there's still human beings on the planet because the way this global warming is going, the ball may reset and get rid of this species. But when the report drops that they knew exactly when, remember down Ellsworth and the Pentagon Papers in the New York Times, well, then people, you know, we won't be around, but somebody else said, well, they did know. Well, you could have said that on August the 14th, 2021, if you've been paying attention to the rhythms of history. Of course they know. Of course they know. The question always is, is always, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So I can't wait to hear that uh, that Barbara Lee, that Barbara Lee interview. Um, but let's 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 talk about this in the context of, you know, we're going back to school, and y'all please be careful. The K twelve folks are already back. The first wave of freshmen have already moved in to many campuses around the country, including the one where I work, Howard University. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of trepidation, there's a lot of nervousness, certainly among those who teach them. Uh, if you are a teacher anywhere in the world, but especially since we're here located in the United States and we're talking from the U.S., thinking about, uh, you know, whether you've got these rogue white nationalist governors like the one in Texas or Florida, uh, you get vaccinated, you protect yourself and uh, whether you're on a local school board, elections matter. So people say, well, you know, they're all the same. No, they're not all the same. People run for school boards, too. And one of the strategies of the white nationalists over the last number of years is to take over school boards. In fact, we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff in a minute. So 
even when some of their children are not in the school, in the school boards, uh, not in public schools. But we have to, as we are protecting ourselves, we realize that we are going back into education, an education system that isn't the same as it was last spring. We're going back into a space that has been forever changed. And in uh, some states like Oregon, for example, they have uh, passed a piece of legislation that the governor signed last week that is leaving the determination of whether or not students have met the state standards exclusively for the next three years as they rework the state standards. They left the decision uh, exclusively to the local school boards and to the local school districts rather. And that's important. Uh, you've got some in the white nationalist party out there, the Republican party who are saying, oh no, you're, you're taking away all the standards. No, what they're trying to do is manage the fact that across this country, and Oregon is no different. You had hundreds of thousands, millions of children that disappeared. Either they never had the technology at their houses to go online, to engage in remote learning, or if they had access to some form of technology to nominally be quote unquote in class, they still had to deal with the fact that the place they were logging in from might not have stable internet access, might be uh, not have stable living conditions, might be in a situation where somebody has contracted COVID. Because remember, the people who are at the bottom of the working class, the poor people who work every day trying to just scrape through, never stopped working outside their houses. They didn't have option from work from home. This is DoorDash. This is Uber. This is Amazon Warehouse. This is all the people who never had the option to stay home. So you got children who are literally hanging on by their fingernails. So in Oregon, they're trying to put something in place to say, well, you know, whether you determine to determine whether or not they go to the next grade until we can figure out how to build something different and catch up to these standards, we're going to leave that to the local uh, school boards to make that decision, the local school districts. That, that's something that's being done on the fly. So as we're going back to school, and here we are in class, and as narrative continues to grow and more and more people join, and if you all are paying attention to any social media, the comments, even we're here on Saturdays, you look on Twitter, and now when you come into narrative, you'll see it in Nubia, you'll soon see it in Nubia. The, the people are really being revived in terms of this tradition of deep thinking, reading, discussing, and so as we are here and, you know, you're writing your syllabus, Prof, I'm writing my syllabus and, you know, I've got my stuff open. Uh, we are very excited. We picked, we settled on our, um, our book for the College of Arts and Sciences, Howard. We, we do a book every year for our freshman seminar class. I've been um, charged with co-leading that with Dr. Dana Williams for the last, uh, wow. I think the first time I got involved in it was in the early 2000s. And then the, the then dean of the College of Arts and Sciences restructured it probably about 12 or 13 years ago. And so I just brought all that learning and experience from the teenagers and their teachers who I've been blessed for the last 21 uh, years, 22 years now, Philadelphia Freedom Schools, right into that freshman seminar. And we established a common text. And we've had every text we've read where somebody was alive uh, who wrote the book, we've had them come. So Wale Shoyenko, he came when we read his book of Africa. And Gugi Watiango, when re we read his book, Something Torn and New, came and spent time with us. Uh, Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates, ta of course, went to Howard. And uh, we had, you know, I said, you know, we'll read this. And 
we had already scheduled it and he told the world he wanted to launch the book from Howard. So the first public conversation around the book in terms of a formal launch came at the uh, height of the middle of the semester of our freshman seminar course. Um, very important. Um, you know, uh, Barracoon, Zornil Hurston, uh, that book, uh, we read that. And of course, she's an ancestor, but Deborah Plant, who uh, brought the manuscript out, um, actually came. And so we've done that. Um, um, uh, Citizen, book of poetry and prose by um, a sister uh, poet. Her name will come to me in a minute. Um, she came. And so this year, we settled on this book by uh, edited by Teresa Perry, Joan Wynn, Ernesto Cortez, Lisa Delpit, and a new ancestor, Bob Moses. Quality education as a constitutional right. Should high quality education be a constitutional right? Should there be an amendment in the constitution guaranteeing all children in this society a high quality education, public education? Now, we're gonna have that conversation with our 18 and 19 year olds in the freshman seminar this semester at Howard in the College of Arts and Sciences. And not just about children, their, um, young people their age or children younger than them, but everyone, adult education. What does it mean to be educated? What does it mean to learn? So as we, we're talking about going back to school, what narrative is doing and what we're doing on Saturdays building into that, we're all going back to school, all of us. And as we're reading, as we're talking, as we're thinking, we are redefining public education, public, not private education. In fact, um, as we go through this book week by week at Howard, I'm surrounding it. We're surrounding it with all kind of other materials because we understand that when I say there is no we in this country, what I'm saying is that there is no common culture. Yeah, there's a flag. Yeah, there's some anthems. Yeah, there's a notion of everybody speak English, but that's a notion. It's not. It's not a requirement. And there's no. There's no common national narrative. No na common national memory. So when we think about that, we understand that the idea, the assault on apartheid in America, which we call Jim Crow in this social structure, we call it Jim Crow, resulted in many people who said we are not part of your we. We want our own we, and we don't, we resent the idea of a we that we associate with America being also associated with you. So we resist, we pull out. And so this is a recent book by Steve Sweets called Overturning Brown, The Segregationist Legacy of the Modern School Choice Movement. And it's interesting because in this book that we're reading, at Howard Quality Education as a Constitution, right? And, and this is a book, of course, that you, I, 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 uh, I encourage you all to get this because it opens. Bob Moses asked a number of educators to gather and uh, had a conversation about what would a quality education look like. And um, he made that call. I'll just go to the beginning, Teresa Perry's lead article. March 11, 2005, they came from all over um, to have this conversation. And people started debating. So one of the first things that she quotes is, says somebody said, well, if the privileged can have a choice, so should black people. That's why I support vouchers and charters. 
Somebody else said charter schools will save public education. Somebody else said charters are an attempt to privatize public education. Somebody else said charter schools outperform regular public schools because they have a self-selected group of students. Somebody else said money won't solve anything. Just look how poorly black and brown students perform in schools that are well-financed. Somebody else said, let's scrap no child left behind. There were all kinds of debates. But one thing is for sure, when you say public education, you're talking about education that everyone theoretically should be able to access and you should have a minimum standard. And what Bob Moses is saying, that minimum standard, that foundation should be high. It doesn't matter where you go to school. It should be high. Can it be higher other places, some places and other places? Can people who can afford to raise the money uh, weaponize their PTA and have all kind of stuff, flying cars and time machines in their school? You can't stop that. If you got the resources, do it. But everybody should have a minimum level. And but what you see in this book, Overturning Brown, is and Sweets does an incredible job of this. Um, he's a very interesting guy. He traces how after Brown, the white nationalists went for school choice and vouchers and started talking about them as segregationist tools and used them to escape, quote unquote, the public schools. And so it's very, and he's got all kind of, you know, he goes through the history of it through, from the 50s through to today. And what we're seeing is that if you're not willing to commit to the public good, then you're not part of the we. Now, the problem becomes when you then try to take over the mechanisms that influence the other people who are willing to do something different in the interest of the public good. And that's where the census comes in. I'm gonna spend five minutes on this and we'll keep going. It's very important because again, we're going back to school, right? So, you know, like I said, the Washington Post has these demographic changes. And soon we know by the middle of this century, we know that white people in this country will be the largest minority group in the country. We have to think about this differently. So people saying, okay, well, you know, the day is coming when white people will be the minority. No. They'll be the largest minority group in the country. It lost about 10% over the last, since the last census. And that's what all the chicanery around the census that took place under the white nationalist administration of Donald John Trump and his friends. But what is clear with this, uh, with this census, these census numbers, no matter how we were talking about undercounts, it's going to be undercounts, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. But what we are facing is a situation where, uh, White NASA's policymakers at the state level in particular, aided and abetted at the federal level by a handful of lawmakers who are heavily funded, at least in one case, Senator Manchin out of uh, West Virginia, by a lot of this uh, money that is interested in, in preserving what I'm about to say, are really trying to create, I call it a neo-Rhodesia. It's a neo-Rhodesia model. In other words, white minority rule. And the white minority rule, meaning that, yes, we might have had a numbers in this country to control federal policymaking. We might have had numbers at the state level to control state policymaking. But if we can gerrymander, in other words, if we can draw electoral districts in a way to maintain some form of control, we are more than happy to have white minority rule in Texas, white minority rule in Florida, white minority rule in Louisiana, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Georgia, white minority rule at the city council level at some of these other places. Now, pause and realize that politicians aren't our friends. That if you want to bar, if you want somebody to look closer to a Barbara Lee, 
or even beyond a Barbara Lee, then you're going to have to surround them with the type of support that will enable them to speak their conscience. Why? Because we understand that many of folk, and there are folks in this room right now, in this conversation right now, who uh, have suffered, who were close to being, if not being unhoused until Cori Bush and the folks occupied the steps of the U.S. Capitol, forced the hand of the federal legislature, tried through Maxine Waters, although Clyburn and, and Pelosi and them couldn't get the numbers together to, to vote. And so threw it back to Biden. And they but the problem is that you've got close to forty seven billion dollars that has already been encumbered by the federal government that is ostensibly available for the states and the cities to and the localities to disperse to take care of this business. And we talked about this last week, so I won't go back into it again. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because many of the cities where folks have not received relief have black mayors, have black city councils. So then the question becomes, what are you doing? <laughs> and what we're going to see shortly when we start talking about the black press, and particularly the black press that leads up to this discovery of Charles Lowe by the New York Times and other reports in this past few days, what we're going to see is that they predicted that shortly after this beginning of black elected officials in the post Voting Rights Act era, there would come black politicians whose interests would be less and less influenced by advancing black people and brown people and poor people and more and more influenced by two things. Number one, the desire to stay in office and number two, external forces that aren't part of their communities. They sh this is what happens. So we, you know, it, it, we aren't just reading, we aren't just studying, we aren't just learning and having conversations just for the sake of doing that, although that is a value. That is a value, but it's not the only value. The, we then take that information and use the momentum of memory to act more in a more informed manner, in a more informed manner. So, you know, let's, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, there was a story that you saw that you put out on social media and it led me to, because it was actually in Tuesday's paper about this brother. And we said, we talk about it today. And I'm just, listen y'all, cause this is live. In a minute, we are gonna start having conversation with folk, you know, bring folk in. Um, professor Hunter, in addition to, of course, being a college professor and, you know, and having a classroom on the airwaves six days a week, including this and in perpetuity with narrative. Um, of course, we know that your one of your uh, first sets of talents and skills that you put together and the foundation for a great deal of what we do now is being a person who engages in writing what Ted Poston and others. And I'm looking at this autobiography of Ted Poston up there. It's actually entitled this writing the first draft of history. Cause that's what journalists do. <laughs> they write the first draft of history. So why did this catch your eye about this particular uh, writer, first draft of history? Well, in the, in the framework of what we've been doing, um, you and I, I had never heard this man before. So that was the first thing I was like, <laughs> so, so there were black press during world war two who were in these places like, cause we think about black press as being impoverished and beleaguered and they don't have the staff and the, and the finances to go. And not only were they in these places, but they were actually reporting the truth back to black people. Wow. Because, you know, in the era that I came up in, a, in the late eighties, early nineties in journalism, you know, all of those papers were beleaguered, impoverished. Mm -hmm. They weren't 
you know, breaking news. They were, you know, it was a lot of social stuff, not a lot of, not a lot of this kind of journalism. So it, it warmed my heart, but it also made me angry that we don't have this today. Like our black media, if you think about it, you know, it's a lot of headlines with edges snatchings and a lot of celebrity news. Um, and listen, it costs money to have journalists that actually will be on the ground, which is why, you know, the commitment that we have in the hub, which is another piece of this puzzle, yes, is that, you know, we have the Haitian Times now that's in partnership with us. So we knew, you know, one of the first stories came out in the hub.news on what happened in Haiti because we have the Haitian Times connection. We have Cedric in Brazil because... Yes. Stuff is happening in Brazil, but we need people on the ground to talk about it. We we're doing something with Undocu Black, um, yeah. and so you know, and and I'm building, you know, and it's taking a while because again, resources are important, and I'm not trying to go out and get funding, you know, because that's right. that's a whole right. other that's a whole other dance, you know, which I'm not willing to do because if we're gonna have true ownership, however long it takes is gonna take. So when I read that story, I was like, how come I didn't know about it? And it was interesting because it was on a thread, somebody's thread. And the very newspaper that was um, propagandizing the war <laughs> on behalf of the government. And then it like it, it just hit me like everything that we know. We talked about Santa Claus this morning. Yeah. This yeah. afternoon. You know, everything that we know is filtered through somebody else's lens about what they want us to know so that we can behave in a way that makes it easy for them to profit and do all of the things they want to do. And we have to be vigilant. So we have to support real news media out outlets that are doing that work. And I don't care whether they're black or not. I just need them to tell the truth. So right. tell us about Charles Loeb and what you found going down the rabbit hole. Well, well, if you don't, if you don't mind just helping us. And again, let me just say this again, in the context of what we're doing, you know, narrative, because we need resources, uh, has a nominal uh, subscription. That's because we need resources. There's no way around this. The story we're about to explore for a few minutes is absolutely about resources. Because without resources, you can't control the institutions you say you own. And as Janet Jackson reminds us, this is a story about control. And so what we're going to see in the black press is that, that story. And Charles Loeb that we're about to explore is going to do that. That's number one. Um, when you control it, you can say and do what you want. There was an article in The Guardian uh, newspaper a couple of days ago um, and understand when we start talking about vouchers and charter school, you know, I, I agree with Dr. Du Bois. Um, Dr. Du Bois said this many years ago when he was talking about segregation. He said what the Negro needs is not segregated education. What the Negro needs is not integrated education. What the Negro needs is education. <laughs> so so let's not get caught up. And let me, and let me piggyback on this, you know, and I have been like, I'm not doing, you know, any publicity around it. I'm not mm -hmm. being handed because I feel like, um, number one, we don't need everybody. Right. So there's not going to be this mass. Like, I'm not imagining, you know, 50 million people coming into narrative and doing this because what is required is people who are willing to do the work. Right. So this is not a hangout spot. This is no. not. You know, it's not your clubhouse. This is not, not I'm not mentioning clubhouse. I'm saying this is not a clubhouse. This is not a hangout spot. This is not a place to clap back and snatch edges. This is a place of work and 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 servitude and commitment to building something that you may not even enjoy. Right. right? So this is the work for the next generation and the generation after that. And so, you know, I, I was committed to funding it, you know, as much as I could, you know, in, in the beginning. And I'm so eternally grateful for the people who get this because not everyone's going to get it 
You know how you, you know, you, you, you may like something, but for me, I will know whether you really are committed by what you do. Your actions will show. Right. So you really want knowledge. I really want freedom. I need us to be free. I'm done. Da, 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 da. Okay. Are you in narrative? Okay. Then what'd you say? Sew your lips up. Right. So keep cosplaying. Yeah. No question. No question. No question. Thank you for saying that. And the resources, the way we imagine it, you know, this is not just about the, the history blocks that we're putting, but it's then about controlling documentaries, TV shows, movies, animation, all of the things that you watch, you know, a Disney do, we should be able to do because we are the overriding viewers of all of this content that's out there. That's right. Why shouldn't we invest in the things that we want to see? That's and then, right. you know, the other thing is I'm like, who do we partner with? Are there people out there doing it? I don't want to re reinvent the wheel. The thing rolls, let's roll, let's come together. That's but right. that also shows who's committed, right? Because do you really want to do this? Do you want to partner with people who are about this? Or do you want to go grab a check somewhere? Because the checks are there. People are getting them every day. They're, they're all of these folk gathering up our great talent That's and right. giving them money to do things. And it's beautiful. That's right. Well, I mean, it is what it is. Right. Because right. because because they I was being uh, sarcastic. A no, bit. I know, you know, and, and I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. You were being saying it is. It is. Well, you use beautiful the way my father used to use lovely. We, you knew Hayward Carr didn't like something when he called it lovely. How you doing? Everything. It's lovely. It's lovely. So you say it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and predictable. And predictable. That's right. what they do. I mean, and even, you know, and I'm, I don't want to derail what you're, because what you're going to do is important. But, you know, when you held up that newspaper, the reason why I cringe is because they're even using the census thing as a rallying cry. And I need us to be really oh, no mindful, no y'all, because there's no such thing as white. This right. that we even have to check boxes, right? Oh, so they did everything they could to divvy up all of the black people with sure all categories. And then you just got white there to keep yeah. the numbers. They... Yeah, for, for time and memoriam since they've been in this settler colony, right? The uh, whatever you call this, uh, you know, right. the Irish weren't white, then they became white. The Italians weren't white, then they became white. The Jewish hey. Jewish people weren't white, then they became white. Hispanic, non-white, white Hispanic. Like, what is that? That's, oh, an, that's, that's another. That's so so they were playing games, and now they can't. There's nothing they can do. We're so because white's not a thing. It's going to always be diluted. It's going to always diminish because it's made up, and you can't hold it up for, for so long. That's so right. now they've abdicated to say, okay, we'll do what they did in South Africa, Rhodesia, whatever you That's call right. it. That's right. So, but if we can all agree that wherever you come from, whatever your nationality is, whatever the country of origin, you're not actually white. If you could divorce yourself from that and be human and, and operate by what we need, what we need to have happen and work towards it, I think, you know, that that's the move. That and that this right. thing is a, is a trick bag, and we need to be careful because what they're doing is rallying the, the, the stupid nationalists out there who are holding to a flag and a culture that's, that's right. a mythology. So, because they don't have anything else and they don't feel like any like a human being or they don't feel powerful, this is their only thing that they can hold on to. That's and right. this is a rallying cry. So, I that's right. I'm not so anyway. No, no, it, it, no, 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 not at all. No, this is this is this is what we're talking about. The story we're about to explore for a minute and the man at the center of it, you know, the we realize that whiteness is crumbling, the myth of whiteness. And this isn't about white people as much as it is about a concept that has been at the heart of the modern world system. We talk about settler colonialism. 
we start talking about settler states like the United States, like every state on the West Atlantic where Europeans came and you know, even the ones where they're not the majority, which would still maintain the borders that were drawn by these international white wars. Um, we're talking about a concept that lies at the heart of the modern world system, the economic system, the political system. It's all commingled. You know, there's a phrase that academics bandy about now called racial capitalism. You know, I mean, and people don't agree necessarily on what it means, but I mean, a simple way of thinking about it is that you can't think about the modern world system without thinking about race in the modern world. And you can't think about race in the modern world without thinking about whiteness, because the concept of whiteness, the artificial notion of race, and at the heart of that, the artificial notion of whiteness has been used to organize the systems in which we live, the social structure, to use that first category, in our Africana Studies framework. And of course, as, as, as we've said many times, the reason we put that framework first is because the one we live in, the one we experience every day, and in order to unthink it, to get to the question of who we are to each other, the governance structure category, we made that the second question, we got to turn the noise down. So let's do a little noise turning down today. And understand that whiteness will do anything to maintain itself because it is bonded with this hierarchy, this empire-based system. You know, there's a brand new book out by um, Susan Williams called White Malice, the CIA and the Co Covert Recolonization of Africa. It's an interesting piece. Here's John F. Kennedy shaking hands with Kwame Nkrumah, who we're going to talk about in a minute with regard to this national black press. Um, she's at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. And it follows in the footsteps of a number of books. Uh, here's a more recent one. This guy, Larry Devlin, Chief of Station Congo is the name of his book. He was actually... Uh, they're in the Congo when they were killing Patrice Lumumba. And understand in some stories, it ain't no good guys. Ralph Bunch, who did an incredible amount of good work for black people and other folks, he was all up in the middle of it too with the UN. Uh, also over there in Palestine, which is a whole nother thing. I mean, so in other words, the United States, like any empire, will continue to try to promote its self-interest. And at the heart of it is a notion of whiteness. In fact, she says that, you know, the uh, post-colonial African independence movements were systematically undermined by one country above all, the United States. You can't have these independent countries over there in Africa, but if you can't control it, then you realize you can't control it. Then you start putting out the illusion that you're making nice. But the reason you're doing it is to maintain control. You know, whether it's giving away an Oscar or a Grammy or Emmy, whether it's uh, running a story about a black journalist who got it right about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, whether it's bringing a few people in diversity, equity into corporations, uh, you know, hey, it's great to do it, but you're doing that to maintain yourself as the arbiter, to maintain yourself as the one who is the authority. Because as long as you can get people to say, yeah, we're making progress. Why? Because they let you in. That's, yeah, look, we made progress. Did, did it help you? Well. I mean, I feel good about it. Wait, yeah, we made progress. Okay, see, no, what you did is you kept the Academy of Motion Picture Arts relevant for another few ticks of the clock. You kept the New York Times relevant for a few more ticks of the clock. Why? They're not, these, are, these aren't concessions that are changes of heart. 
They are concessions because of the external pressure of a world in which whiteness is fracturing and dissolving. And if you don't keep the ad revenue going in a dying business, or if you're going to keep people who are now making independent media and art and culture looking at you, you're going to have to make some concessions. So to th this New York Times article, mm. and, the, and look, here's the first clue that's sneaking in. It ain't the front page. It's the science section. <laughs> it's the science section, and there's the brother right here, right? They got a drawing of him, right? In the article, William Broad, a black war correspondent, exposed military deceptions about the atomic bomb. Loeb, L-O-E-B. Huh. Footnote. All right, there's probably maybe one other nerd out there who knows that the Loeb uh, editions are the Harvard Press editions of Greek translations. In fact, that's what uh, Theophile Omega taught us our first lessons in, in Attic Greek was using the Loeb translations. But anyway, no relation, I'm sure. L-O-E-B. Loeb <laughs> reflects on the atomic bombed area, read the headline in the Atlanta Daily World, Black Press, Governance Structure, October 5th, 1945, two months after Hiroshima's ruin. In the world of black newspapers, that name alone was enough to attract readers. Right, L-O-E-B. Charles H. Lowe was a black war correspondent whose articles in World War II were published, distributed to papers across the United States by the National Negro Publishers Association, NNPA. We'll come back to that in a second because the NNPA still exists. It's the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Its headquarters is down at the Thurgood Marshall Center on 12th Street here in uh, D.C., Northwest D.C., and the uh, CEO uh, is uh, our friend, um, um, Ben, I sorry, I say Ben Chavis, Ben Chavis, who is uh, Ben Chavis Muhammad, who is the head of the National Newspaper Association. That is the, the group that was formerly known as the National Negro Publishers Association, founded in 1940. We're going to talk a little bit about the history because all of this ties together. It's very interesting. And it's a governance structure conversation, who we are to each other. And in its victories and in its missed opportunities, we have the ability to study it and understand the and learn and regain the momentum of memory so we won't make the same mistakes and we can capture some of the momentum of the good things that this organization did. Um, so we know that this brother, Charles Loeb, who had been writing for a number of years uh, and who wrote for a number of years up into his death, uh, mostly for the Cleveland Column Post, now the Ohio Column Post, the very important newspaper, which we'll talk about in a second. He was trained. He was actually thinking he was going to go to medical school. In fact, Charles Loeb, who was born in Baton Rouge, uh, uh, Baton Rouge Louisiana in 1905, uh, Charles Loeb went to uh, the first school for black folk in Baton Rouge, McDonough High School. And then he went to Howard University, he graduated in uh, 1926 with a degree in science um, and wanted to go, um, they didn't call it biology back then, it's like zoology. He wanted to go to medical school, but he ran out of money. So he was trained, at least had his first basic foundation as a student in the sciences. And then he started, he dropped out of school, uh, and then he started working eventually as a newspaper man. He worked for the New York Amsterdam News. He worked for the Atlanta Daily World, as we just heard, which was the most successful black weekly for a number of years. Now, there were other black weeklies who were more successful, depending on when you look at them. The Pittsburgh Courier being one, the great Chicago Defender, Robert Abbott, and then Robert Singstack comes on after him. There's a great book called The Defender, which does the history of that. But um, he also works for the Jacksonville world. Charles Loeb is writing 
all this time. Um, he then joins the Cleveland Calling Post in 1933, and he stays there for 45 years. Now, this article, which talks about the fact that he went overseas, sponsored by the National Negro Publishers Association, to cover World War II, particularly black troops, goes on. And here it takes up this whole page talking about the fact that while the New York Times and all the white press was, was buying the propaganda that the US military was sending out, that these bombings didn't kill people with radiation and that they died peacefully. And um, while they're doing all that, this man's a scientist. So, in fact, they go on to say, in fact, th this is one thing that the government is sending out. The government says during press tours, they're in New Mexico and Japan of the atomic detonation, de uh, detonation points because the guy grows over the Manhattan Project. They're blowing up stuff in, in New Mexico. right? And then they're in Japan. They, and then they bring the press in to buy the propaganda. And they say, uh, see the Geiger counter? There are low readings. There's little or no radiation danger. Mr. You could live there forever. Mr. Lawrence, who was the writer for the New York Times at the time, quoted the general as saying of Hiroshima, meaning what? It ain't no radi lingering radiation. Look at the Geiger counter. It's not ticking, see? And these fools just writing it down, just writing it down, just writing it down. My man Loeb, our man Loeb, your man, the man in your crab, Loeb, Colonel Warren was the Manhattan Project's top physician. His stateside job was to protect bomb makers from radiation hazards. He goes on. And there's a book called Atomic Doctors that was published last year that talks about the fact that he knew better and that they made choices to withhold all the science. But here's the thing. Loeb knew that the Geiger counter only captured one form of radiation. And see, he says, uh, this is what the writer says. At Howard University, one of the nation's le leading historically black colleges and universities, Loeb had taken pre-med curriculum before turning to newspaper work and was familiar with the basics of physics and chemistry, anatomy and pathology, x-rays and lead shielding. And then he goes on to say, it's unclear where Mr. Loeb encountered Colonel Warren, but he encountered him. And then in the New York Daily World, he wrote that, nah, that radiation comes in two forms. And I'm telling you, these people are dying and they are gonna die. <laughs> and the, so the black readers are understanding. It says, Colonel Warren, the radiologist, Mr. Loeb said, judged that a single exposure to a dose of gamma radiation, similar in effect to x-rays, at the time of the detonation, gave rise to the gruesome ills. In other words, the thing explodes. There's a burst, gamma rays, x-rays. That's what's going to kill you. The, 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 the Geiger counter doesn't pick that up. But Loeb knew to listen to the scientists and then ask questions to extract that. And then he gives it to the black readers. I'm going to pause there because just I, I need you to pause there because I need everybody to pause there. Yes. What you're telling us is that journalists and in particular, Charles Lowe knew some things. How about that? You're not just going into a situation, which is why the scholarship that you, that you require of us is so important that whatever field you're in, that you come into it with a vast knowledge of the thing in which you're covering. Yes. And this is sorely missed today, but I just, I, I wanted to sit in that too. For well, a let's, let's, you know what? Let's stay there. 
let's stay in that chair you just made us sit in. Because what we're about to explore just for a few minutes is exactly what you said. Here's the standard. If y'all want to be a if you want to be a journalist, you writing a blog or a tweet is not being a journalist. Having a staff is a luxury was a luxury for these women and men. And there were women, Carlotta Bass, the publisher of the California Eagle, being one of them. Let's be very clear. But you ain't got no huge staff, which means these aren't just writers. These are researchers. In, in Loeb's case, they are trained even at a nominal level in science. And they went. But what brought them together was what is something similar to what we was being what we building in there. In other words, we cannot rely on these other people, nor should we. The idea that we would rely on them is unsound. Let, let's just look, for example, at this. By November 1945, a month after Loeb's article, public awareness of the radiation issue had grown to the point that General Groves could no longer deny the toll of the bomb's initial bursts. Instead, he described their impact on humans as a, quote, very pleasant way to die. What They're dying. They're dying. Okay, well, it's pleasant. Says what? The black press in subsequent months kept pounding away. The Baltimore Afro-American spoke of, quote, thousands of radiation victims. Goes on, goes on, goes on. Now, here's where the time puts the editorial in. Mr. Loeb died in 1978 at age 73. While getting no credit for his atomic scoop, he became known late in life among journalists as the dean of black newsmen. And he goes on. Hold on. While getting no credit. I'm sorry. <laughs> while we were clueless. Because what you see in it, let me just let me just spend three minutes on the career of Charles Loeb. 1944-45, that NNPA sends him to uh, the war, the theater war theater, but it ain't just him. They send Ralph Matthews. He's in the Pacific area. They they raise the resources to send twelve others. They got fourteen reporters overseas because they have pooled their resources. Because if you're reading. The Defender, if you're reading The Courier, if you're reading the uh, the column post, if you're reading on the East Coast, the Afro, but it ain't just the Baltimore Afro or the D.C. Afro. They got a New York Afro. They got Afro. If you're reading the Norfolk Journal and Guide, if you're reading the Atlanta Daily World, if you're reading all the Jackson Advocate, if you're reading the black newspapers, you know what's going on. And they sent overseas correspondence. Interesting. In 1949. Charles Loeb goes out to Lincoln University in Jeff City, Missouri to join fellow black journalists and newspaper publishers. And they are there to ask a simple question at this HBCU post-World War II. The topic of their meeting, will the Negro newspaper die? Sponsored by the Lincoln University School of Journalism. So everybody talking about we're going to revive, we're going to have journalism at HBCUs, we're going to connect HBCUs. Did you know that HBCUs used to have journalism that was connected? I didn't know that. Get the momentum of memory. And before you invent the wheel, go back and look at them hella wheels in the 40s. Because <laughs> this ain't in the New York Times. What the New York Times is basically saying is, look at us. So we're going to give ourselves credit for discovering this Negro who was writing in obscurity. No, there were millions of black people reading these black newspapers. Their children were reading the black newspapers in them Jim Crow schools that were so terrible that we had to have Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, what they wanted was resources. But what you do not mistake that for the fact that they were not that they weren't reading. They were reading the black press and the black press had hella black reporters. Understand it. Come forward a few more years. They're 1953. He's in Cleveland, right? 
we're going to talk about, let me talk about this guy for a minute because I'm going to tie a couple of these political things together. The publisher of the Colin Post, the Cleveland Colin Post dude named William Otis Walker. William Otis Walker said, look at black people. Look at black people. By the early 60s, black people made up 37% of the population of Cleveland. And here's what Otis Walker said. Talk about whiteness. He says, those aren't white people. They're Irish. They're Czechs. They're Slavs. He said, they all cling to their ethnic identity. We need to practice ethnic politics. We're black. Our ethnicity has been determined through coming out of enslavement. Most people who live up here, who migrated from places like Baton Rouge, like, uh, you know, like Birmingham, wherever. So we black. But those people you're calling white, watch them. The Czechs vote for the Czechs. The Irish vote for the Irish. They're in their own communities. If we approach this as ethnic instead of racial politics, we can win all the elections. We're the largest ethnic group in Cleveland. So they launch a strike. And then he says this. He said, we got to figure out a way to do that and we have to bust up the Republican Democratic Party and make these open primaries because if you run an open primary and the top two finishers then compete, we can take over the city. We got to think ethnic politics. So what do they do? Because these guys were at that time coming out of the Republican Party. They said we need to be independent. We need to be registered independents. The first time Carl Stokes, who ended up being the mayor of Cleveland, ran, he ran as an independent. Because the black press guys, Walker and them boys, including Loeb, is like, look, this is, in fact, Loeb paves the way for them because in 1956, I don't know, I guess the Times didn't have room and I understand why. 1956, he runs for Congress against the Czech on an ethnic approach. Doesn't win, but he's softening up the idea. So, their basic thing is we can fracture whiteness because it ain't real. Ask them Irish where they get along with the Czechs. Ask the Czechs and the Irish how they feel about the Poles. They cling to these ethnic identities. Stop approaching whiteness as a monolith. The white community is not a monolith. Wait, we hear that about the black community. Yeah, but you know who's closer to a monolith than the white community? The black community. Because the oppression made blackness. Whiteness is the way that oppression maintains itself by extending to this artificial concept of whiteness some form of privilege once you take the privilege away whiteness disappears and so it's very interesting so anyway i'll, I'll speed through this he's getting all kind of awards from the black press uh in 1971 he gets a number of awards by the end of his life, 1977. He's going around. He's getting now. He's not just getting awards locally in Cleveland. The elementary school has a, a day for him. They give him an award. The children come in. He's an interesting guy because he writes. Um, he writes poetry. He has a column. You know, we talk about Calvin Trillin, the poet who used to write for the nation, this kind of thing. Man, this dude, Charles Loeb, was writing political commentary and poetry for many years in the Cleveland Column Post. His uh his 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 um his column was called Education in Rhyme. No, Editorial in Rhyme. The Mediations of Methuselah Brown, America's number one exponent of horse sense. Now, I understand, uh, while getting no credit for his atomic school, he became known late in life among journalists as the Dean of Black Newsmen. Not late in life, bruh. Not late in life, all along. But let's, let me, let me, let me kind of, let me wind this up. Because I haven't even gotten to the, to the, to the thing that's messed up about this. Remember I said the editor, I'm sorry, the publisher, the owner and publisher of the Cleveland Column Post was William Otis Walker. And if y'all want to read about this, there are two good books that I would recommend. 
one i'll do the second one first because it goes gives you a blow by blow of what i'm talking about what i'm about to talk about lawrence hogan many years ago wrote a book called a black national news service the associated negro press and claude barnett very important book he's he he narrates what i'm about to tell y'all the book that expands it on this national uh the associated negro press is my man gerald horn the rise and fall of the associated negro press claude barnett's pan-african news and the jim crow paradox gerald horn pause social structure question african states who are africans to other people well to the new york times and social structure media black people are americans who happen to be black and black history is american history blah 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 the governance structure who are africans to each other the black american press has never been only for black americans because their overseas correspondence didn't just cover world war ii claude barnett's outfit had reports coming in from the caribbean from africa and when they would put things on their wire in other words i hate to use this example but i'll use it because people got a governance structure a, a social structure framework it, think of the black associated press but this ain't what Loeb was in here's where the tragedy comes in because remember Loeb and them boys is with the AANP in other words they with the black newspaper publishers Claude Barnett born in the late 1880s um went to Tuskegee University Claude Barnett starts the Associated Negro Press as an independent organization to provide news for all the black newspapers. It is one of the most fascinating stories that you ever want to hear. 1889 in Florida, that's where he was born. He went to Tuskegee, graduated in 1906. He then kind of moved around. He worked as a mailman because uh, because from nine months old, his family moved to Chicago. So he really raised in Chicago, he really Chicago. When back Chicago worked as a mailman, he started noticing in the newspapers, these great pictures of great black figures and history and this kind of thing. So he started a mail order company where he started selling the photographs and selling the artwork and this kind of thing. And he began his Associated Negro Press as a business venture. He said, in exchange for you putting advertisements in the black newspapers, um, I will subsidize that with revenue from me selling. And he said, you know what? I want to get past selling photographs about great black people and little stories. So he starts in 1919, 1919, the Associated Negro Press. And at its height, the ANP, which had news, news reporters all over. This is why this book right here does a great job of it. The Associated Negro Press, these, they had reporters. If it was an earthquake in Haiti, you ain't gonna read about it in the New York Times. You read about it in Jackson Advocate. If you see like the brother Robinson who went over after World War I to help set up the Ethiopian Air, uh, the Ethiopian Air Force to fight Italy, the pressure was put on the US government to send him by the black press. And who's covering it? These stringers from the AMP. <laughs> the AMP was fire when i tell you want to read about the italian ethiopian war you got to pick up the pittsburgh courier 
1935. Haile Selassie gives a speech at the League of Nations, the Chicago Defender, but not just the Defender, not just the Courier, not just the Amsterdam News. You south of Jim, you south of the Mason-Dixon line, the Afro, the Norfolk Journal and Guide. You coming down to Savannah, Georgia. You down in Atlanta with the Daily World. You in Jacksonville, Florida with the world. You come across to Alabama, Mississippi, the Jackson Advocate. You go all the way out to Louisiana. Then you get to the West Coast, California. 200 papers, and not just that. Oh my goodness. I'm a, I, I, we, could, we could talk all day about Claude Barnett, but I'm going to drop this thing right quick and keep going because uh, <laughs> Claude Barnett got married. Claude Barnett died in 1967. Oh, wait, I should tie the loose thing on the Cleveland Collin Post guy. By 1940, the Associated Negro Press is providing this stuff to the black newspapers, but it's controlled by Claude Barnett and his people. You got a bureau chief here in D.C., this kind of thing. His second in command, we're going to come to that in a second, because in 1940, in 1940, the Negro Newspaper Association of, of uh, uh, Negro Newspaper Association, the one that Loeb worked with because he's with the, the, the Call and Post, these are the owners of the newspapers. And guess what? In 1940, they pulled their own organization together. Now, mind you, the history of black news organizations in terms of associations goes back to T. Thomas Fortune and them, Ida B. Wells and them generation around 1875. This is during Reconstruction. They come up with the first association of black newspapers. This is insane. Wait, you can still see the cotton in the field. Half y'all was under the whip. Yeah. So let's bring all the newspapers to get newspapers. Y'all got newspapers? Come on, y'all. That's why we build narrative. We get we're not, we don't reinvent the wheel. They come together then. And fortune, the New York Age. Du Bois writing for the New York Age as a teenager in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I'm saying th this is the kind of momentum you begin to see now. But in 1940, you've got two generations of black newspaper people, and these cats in 1940. They think that them old guys, now some, most of them ancestors, then the next generation, y'all kind of slow with it. We need to, there ain't no new things in history. So they start the, the Negro Newspaper Publishers Association in 1940. And guess what? They do. If y'all want to read about this, there's a number of good books. I mean, the oldest book on the black press that I'm aware of, at least off the top of my head, uh, I Garland penned, I Initial I period Garland G A R L E N D P E N N. He's friends with Ida B. Wells. In fact, I Garland Penn, Freddie Douglas, and Ida B. Wells are the ones who wrote that. Why the Negro is not the, in the Colored Exposition. When we talked about Angel Mama and she was at the Colored Exposition in Chicago, the World's Exposition, the Columbian Exposition, and the Haitians let them put the pamphlets out. I Garland Penn was one of those guys. He wrote a history of the Black Press back then. So you can go to 1890s, 1900, 1910. You'll see I Garland Penn. So you can read some of that early history. And of course, it goes back to Freeman's Journal and all this kind of stuff as well. But the point is, in 1940, the next generation is saying we want our own thing, so they do that, but they approach, they ask Claude Barnett to come to the meeting, because Barnett got the independent news source, The Wire, that's feeding these guys, but they don't want to pay, and they want to control. They want, So they build their own wire, and that's the one that sends those 14, including Loeb, overseas. And near the end of some of their lives, in interviews they gave to Lawrence Hogan, they said, I wish we hadn't done that. 
we could have paid Claude Barnett. But we were so damn fixed on owning it. Barnett already had the infrastructure. Barnett never promoted himself. Barnett was all about pan Africa. He wanted the whole thing. If we had just subsidized him, because at the time they said, why don't y'all just pay Barnett? They, in fact, they had worked out the memo. Look, let's put a little Barack Obama reference in here right quick. <laughs> Barnett missed the first meeting when they came together to put together the Negro Newspaper Association because they wanted him to come because he was already subsid uh, you know giving them stuff even though many of them didn't pay their bills one of the reasons the uh the uh, associated negro press went out of business because they ran out of money because they hadn't paid their bills to him to keep the thing going but he but he couldn't come so he sent his top lieutenant a dude named frank marshall davis y'all ever heard that name you ever heard the name professor hunter never i'm i'm so mad right now i'm sitting here taking notes. oh don't worry i ain't even dropped the bomb yet wait a minute i'm gonna tell you about the bomb in a minute yeah, I need you to the bomb. Yeah, the bomb is safe for narrative. If y'all want to hear about the bomb, you had to call the narrative. Right? What is the bomb? Just wait. Just wait about five minutes. Here's our friend. This this is David Garrell's big book, Rising Star. I got you know I got Barack Obama's books, all of them, including Dreams of My Father and all the way, and then in the first back. But the thing I like about this guy, David Garrell, nothing personal. It's like he's obsessed. He just basically gave a TikTok like the every day of Barack Obama's life or something. So early in this book, and this is this book is one thousand, including uh, uh, index, one thousand four hundred and sixty pages. On page 73, 73, he starts talking about when Barack Obama was eight years old and went to Hawaii with his grandparents to live down there. And their, one of their closest friends was this dude named Frank Marshall Davis, who had married this white woman years before, and they moved to Hawaii. She had a little money. Then they got divorced and so forth and so on. Frank Marshall Davis and Barack Obama start a little relationship. The reason some people may have heard that name, uh, what's that fool's name that went to Dartmouth, uh, Indian American guy, Dinesh D'Souza. He made a whole movie where he, his, he, he with this harebrained social structure theory that Frank Marshall Davis is Barack Obama's real father. For, for, for a long time, Frank Marshall Davis was a registered member of the Communist Party. Frank Marshall Davis was, during the 1930s and 40s, and if you want to uh, read about Frank Marshall Davis or read some of his stuff, here is a book of his stuff edited by John Edgar Tidwell called Living the Blues. Living the Blues. Memoirs, uh, memoirs of a Black Journalist and Poet. Very important. Scottsboro Boys, all this stuff he's writing about, Frank Marshall Davis. Frank Marshall Davis was was Team Claude Barnett. So that was the Barack Obama. Uh, y'all can y'all can go look him up if you want. Because I mean, the the, the 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 CRT Sharia law communist communist crowd. In other words, the white nationalists who will use any label to drive their white nationalist agenda. For a while, they were waving Frank Marshall Davis that see he's a real he's a Muslim and he's a communist because you really know this guy Frank Davis that was his daddy. They were in Hawaii and he's the one had him reading Karl Marx and all you know these people who if Karl Marx came up and asked him for a dollar or uh, to call him an Uber they wouldn't know who he was. But they used that they waved that Frank Marshall Davis flag for a minute. But anyway, that that brings Obama in and takes him out at the same time. Barnett couldn't make the meeting in 1940 when they put together the National Negro Publishers Association. So he sent his right hand man, Frank Marshall Davis. Frank Marshall Davis comes to the meeting prepared to negotiate and they can't get it together. The missed opportunity 
was to infuse the Associated Negro Press with the resources it needed to keep feeding the black newspapers. But Barnett kept on on Donna into the 1950s, into the 1960s, set up uh, connections with the newspapers in the Caribbean, got the highest award for a non-resident, non-native in Haiti. They gave him uh, Claude Barnett that award, went to Ghana, toured 11 or 12 countries with his wife, and here's where the bomb comes. His wife. <laughs> his wife, Etta. Etta Moten Barnett. She was born in 1901 in Texas, Weimar, Texas. Got a degree from the University of Kansas, 1931. She went on to Broadway. She starred in a number of Black productions, starred on Broadway, Sidney Poitier, and Harry Belafonte saw her. And Poitier was like, oh, man, she is beautiful. And Belafonte said, hey, man, stay out of my way. I'm going to make that move. And they were crushed when they found out she was married to Claude Barnett, one of the most beautiful one of the most gifted and talented. She dubbed songs in Barbara Stenwick movies in Hollywood. Took, took Stenwick's voice out, put her voice in. When you see her singing them songs, that lady was in the Big Valley or whatever. You know, she went in Hollywood stars as a young girl. That's Etta Moten singing. Etta Moten was the first black woman to perform at the White House. But she and Clara Barnett. Oh yeah, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Yeah, we got Will and Jada. Now, go look up Claude and Etta Moten Barnett. Remember Dr. King and Coretta Scott King? Martin King and Coretta Scott King went to Kwame Nkrumah's uh, 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 bringing in as the prime minister in 1957 in Ghana. Claude and Etta Barnett were there. In fact, Etta Barnett interviewed Martin Luther King. They, they switched over, took the flag down, took the British flag down, put the Ghanaian flag up at midnight, 1957. And that's when the switch over. After it was over, they cheered, they talked, there's a few speeches, it's over. They sitting down. Adam Moten is like, King, let me talk to you. The first interview after midnight, the day of independence in Ghana, was Adam Moten Barnett interviewing Martin Luther King. How you feel about it, bro? For the black press. This is Etta. It's not Claude. <laughs> you understand? Etta Barnett. Lived to 102. She passed away in 2004. No, yeah, 2003. 2003. She passed away. She has all kind of writings, interviews. Y'all go look up Etta Moten Barnett, or better yet, wait till we drop her in the You Should Know section of narrative, and we'll get into a long conversation about who she was, because she was a whole beast completely separate from her. 20 years older than she was husband. So let's, 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 but, but we, we got all that. We began all that. You did this, Professor Hunter. We began all that because the New York Times decided that they were going to give themselves credit for discovering an unknown black writer who got it right about how y'all killed those people in Japan twice with those bombs, except that ain't even the story. That ain't even the story. <laughs> anyway. And as, as you're holding up that paper, I wonder if the 1619 Project I'm just, I'm let that just sit in y'all's spirit for a second. You talk about the relevancy. Well, uh, I, let me, let me say this. Had that, that been in another paper? Could that yeah. have been in a black paper? Could that, could the 1619 project, would it have been relevant? Mm, I'm asking a question, but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not expecting an answer because it's beautiful. Yeah. It's all beautiful. No, um, no, no, the 1619 project 
was already written in the black press. No, I, I'm. You saying correct, right? But the Pulitzer, the, 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 the all of the oh. all of the fanfare around that because it's the New York Times. You just talked about them in the science section congratulating themselves for discovering somebody that we should have already known. I'm mad that we didn't know as a journalist for damn near 20 years that I didn't know any of these people until today, because I'm always surprised. We have a little chit chat, but you don't tell me yeah. where you're going. I'm always surprised. No, we have a good time with it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and it's sad because everybody who's studying journalists, journalism Come should, on. should know these people. Oh, oh, I should mention this. Please. When the, when the, when the journalists would meet, Lincoln University used to do it every year. In fact, somebody out there, some of y'all out there from Missouri, go to Jefferson City, or if you went to Lincoln University, there's a book to be written. There's an article to be written. There's stories to collect about those journalism conferences among black newspaper editors, newspaper publishers, and newspaper writers at Lincoln University. Because one of the things they would do when they gathered, they would give scholarships to black students going to the black schools. And so there is a history of black journalism connected to black colleges and Black K-12. It was the elementary school students who honored Charles Loeb back in the 60s at a black school in Cleveland. They had a Charles Loeb day. So Etta Moten tells the stories about when she first went out singing and doing performing. And, and she said, I was on the HBCU tour. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that what you're raising, Professor Hunter, is so important because this is the thread that people who are in this room right now who are on narrative. You have the keys to these answers. You got elders in your house right now. Some of y'all are the elders listening to it who are thinking, you know, I used to read. I used to read that paper. There are over 200 papers called Barnett and them. And they aren't papers just reporting what's going on in the U.S. They are papers that are reporting what's going on in the black world. They have overflowed the boundaries of the United States. And some of y'all read those papers. Some of y'all read. And so the only thing I say is this. It used to be an honor. I remember Manning Marable who you know made train i remember when manny marable was at ohio state i sit and talk with manny marable before he left ohio state and went i guess colorado first then columbia but you know when he was a young man in graduate school he, he was fisk and then you know he started writing for the black newspapers he wrote a column called along the color line and he said i will write this and i'm going to give it to you for in exchange for a subscription and that's how, as a graduate student, Manny Marable, following in the footsteps of W.E.B. Du Bois, it was an honor to have a column in the black newspapers. Some of y'all have written for black newspapers. Some of y'all are on the staff of these black newspapers. And you're right, they're struggling because the whole model has been disturbed, has been disrupted, and has been for years. But that doesn't mean that we can't rebuild it with the current technology. Narrative. You people can look at their websites and all, oh, looking at Griot and looking at the community and people realizing that the world is no longer as white as it used to be trying to bring a few black people in. But if you're watching white face and media, that's great to have some black people on there, but we talking about something else. <laughs> Pick up these books here and read about, cause one of the things Claude Barnett and so one of the reasons they fell out, didn't fell out. But one of the reasons they wouldn't go all in with Barnett, you know, this, this news is black as hell. <laughs> you understand? I mean, black people have their own ideas. Imagine news a whole imagine black people with their own ideas on US foreign policy and it's in the black press. You this is not Afrofuturism. You want we you want to find what we think about the war? Don't go look at the Negroes that they interview or the two columnists who are now in the white newspapers. Go back and dig up the black press from the 1910s all the way up through the 60s and see what they said. 
because it's in there. Mm. It's in there. It's already there. And where's the Vivian Harsh Library in Chicago, where the uh, association uh, with Claude Barnett's papers are at Edda Moten Barnett put them there, whether it's uh, any of the archives, whether it's Howard University, where the Black Newspaper Association put their archives and how it began, Clint Wilson II, who wrote about the Black press. Uh, Clint Wilson II, who put together a proposal to the Knight Foundation decades ago to have Howard be subsidized as a place to re-energize this, but the Knight Foundation decided to pass. Now Nicole is there, Hannah Jones. So to get that going at Howard and connect HBCUs, the first step is to take some of those resources, and I think, you know, becoming aware that she's not already aware, do this. Go back and find out what they did at Lincoln. Go back and find out what they did at these HBCUs and just update it. Because then they gave you the money now, they can't take it back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Then they gave you the money. If they take it back now, now we know. Are y'all playing? And don't digitize that stuff and give it to the white schools, because that's the game they're playing now. Yes. We're going to help you digitize. Okay, and then we'll have, you know, what will you have? Control. <laughs> yeah, we see you. Nah, nah. So those of you who are down with this, y'all come on over to narrative. Thank you all for everybody who's coming. Y'all coming, and it's beautiful because this is the work. This is our work. And while we're in this public space, hit the thumbs up because that's how you say that you're present in class. That's you're right. Here. Everybody, thumbs up, thumbs up. That's the algorithms. Let's break every space that we're in and let them know we're here. Yes, that, that matters. Yes. Um, so, so narrative, which we are spending a lot of time in, I'm loving it. Uh, I got, I got a um, DM this week uh, from, from a woman, uh, part of our narrative family. Um, and she, she, I'm going to read some of it. She said, I just want to thank you and Dr. Carr for in class. I hooked my father, Tommy Hall to it. And it became our Saturday tradition. Currently he's in the hospital and it looks like his body will not contain his spirit any longer. He hasn't been able to watch since his hospitalization. And as the internet will not allow the live streaming, he's asked about this, the largest Africana class uh, before being placed on a ventilator. I know this is long, but I just want to say thank you for enriching our lives. And she goes on. And so I actually she's part of narrative. So I was like, will you come and honor your father because you, you were the first person to introduce me to this notion of ancestors, which, you know, I knew about ancestors, but to understand the transition and that they're always with us. And I mean, the many different conversations we've had about it, I think it's important that we say names and that we honor people. Let me welcome our tense uh, today. Artense. Hi, Hi, good afternoon. How are, How are you? you? I'm good. Sorry, I'm trying to make this so I can see. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I wanted to thank you all because my father and I made it a tradition on Saturdays to watch. And when I hooked him on to you, he could not really work the television and, and the technology. <laughs> but uh, I remember one day I was cooking and I was a little late. And next thing I know, he has it on. So he found a way <laughs> to do this. I love it. I love it. Where where, where are y'all? Um, Pooler, Georgia. So um, I'm just going to say sadly to say that afternoon I got the response um my father became an ancestor Ashe, Ashe. and um so but I did read the response to him about I think I read it about four times it was three or four mm -hmm. times and I saw his mouth um kind of twitch a lot during that time frame and, and I knew that this was making him very very happy what's his, um, what's his full name 
Tommy Lee, L-E-E, Hall, um, born in Tuskegee, Alabama. <laughs> yeah, What's he's actually birthday? from Shorter. What's his birthday? Um, August 20, actually it will be this coming month, um, next Monday, August 23rd. Wait a minute, you didn't say Shorter, not Shorter, West Virginia. No, Shorter, Alabama. Shorter, Alabama, Shorter, right Alabama. Yes. Shorter College, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Ashe, Ashe, Tommy Lee, oh, what did he study? Um, you said, you said, what did he study? Mm -hmm. He did not, he didn't go to college. He went to sh <clears throat> the city, right? Or the town right outside of Tuskegee. Yes. It's shorter. Yes. And so he did not, actually, he got a sixth grade education, went back, got his GED. Extremely intelligent man. He mm -hmm. always read. He could tell, I mean, he could, I would go to him to ask him any questions that I had. <laughs> Extremely intelligent. <laughs> my granddaddy and my mom. They know. They know. Yeah. I bet and, you, you, my mother's from Opelika, Alabama. She uh, went to the uh, seventh grade there in one of them Rosenwald schools. Their handwriting was like you had a typewriter. I don't know if your daddy was like that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Like how they wrote, if they write notes. <laughs> but what I'm saying is those segregated schools, they really gave them an incredible education. Those numbers don't mean anything. You know, sixth grade, no, that, no, that school they went to. So how right. like, did y'all stay in the did y'all stay in uh Alabama, Georgia for a while? You in Georgia? No, um actually my parents had moved to Cleveland, Ohio. They met in Cleveland, Ohio. No way. <laughs> yeah, my You've father been about Cleveland this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um my father had a bus ticket and was about to travel around and um he saw my mother and cashed in his bus ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I love but, it. What's yeah. her name? What's your, what's your mom's name? Um, Brenda Sue Coleman. Well, her her maiden name was Coleman. Yes. Um, but Hall, she actually passed away two years ago. I say. So they together now. So, yeah. And listening to every word. And listening to every word. Yeah. So going straight now. We ain't got a word. What? And the beauty yeah. of this is, uh, our tens. You have a large family here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, your parents may not be on this side, um, but we're all here. And the thing that I love most about this community that we built is that, you know, we are each other's family. So you're never alone. And I just wanted to, you know, thank you for sharing that, you know, and thank then have you so publicly honor your dad, Tommy Lee, uh, so that we can remember him always. Yeah. And I just have his picture. That's him? Can see it. Yeah. Oh, he's a serviceman. Yeah. He what was brand? drafted army. Lord have mercy. Is that Korea or? Um, he actually got stationed in Korea um, during uh, was it drafted Vietnam? But he actually served in Korea. Ashe, Ashe, that is yeah. a handsome man right there. So you, <laughs> so you from Cleveland? Originally from Cleveland. I currently live in Pooler, Georgia. Yeah. My father passed away in Savannah, Georgia. I say, yeah. when we say call and post, then you know exactly what we talking about. The, the <laughs> newspaper, the black newspaper. I wonder now, you got me wondering if their wedding announcement was in there or anything else was in the call and post if they were in Cleveland all those years. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, my father didn't do a lot of talking about his family. You had to kind of pull it out of him, kind of old school male. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But the rock, though, a rock. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, I wanted to say one thing and then I, I don't want to keep it long. No. But um, my father used to be a police officer in Montgomery, Alabama. Really? Yeah. And um, he was one of the first cops on the scene for the Todd Road incident. What? Yeah. Um, and so he 
used to tell me a lot of stories when we used to talk about the cops. He used to tell me a lot of stories about how he had to tell people to go ahead and move because the white cops would try to instigate and try to get them to react. And he would tell me so many stories. And it was, was during the 80s, during the time of the mayor, Emory Falmer. I mean, yeah, I think it was Emory Falmer mm-hmm. was the mayor at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And the, a lot of the stories that I would hear people say about the police, I totally believe it. Because I heard the stories firsthand from my father of what, ha- what happened. You know, one person said, um, I can't wait to catch me an N word. And my father said he told her, be careful, you just might. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Artez, the, the courage it takes mm-hmm. for a black police officer to be black in that uniform. I hope you write those stories down and share I, them. And uh, I, I was going to say, we're making space and narrative is one of the, the initiatives um, to share your narrative uh, because this is how we remember our people, right? And so we're going to leave space for that in Nubia folk to share, share pictures and images. And um, we're looking in, into animating some of those stories. And, you know, because that's important. That's how we build our tapestry, our history, right? Long yeah. term. So uh, thank you. And that Todd Road incident, now I got a rabbit hole to go down. Thank you. Yes, thank yes. You. Appreciate it. Oh my God. Thank you, Artense. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. That is, a, I mean, yeah. I mean, just that life. Oh, I should I should have mentioned by the by. This is just a footnote to Charles Loeb's life. Uh, the Cleveland Column Post sent Charles Loeb to Montgomery, Alabama, 1955, to cover the trial of Rosa Parks. Anyway, we can keep going. I guess the Times, like that wouldn't fit on the science section. But anyway, so <laughs> just say, wow, he was a police officer in Montgomery, Professor. Hunt. I'm just like, come on. I'm looking at the Hoff riots of 1960. I'm like, what? All of these things, you know, so I, I want to thank, you know, everybody's bringing their brick to this. Um, and narrative, uh, well, uh, you know what, when we talk about, been talking about the black press, narrative is the space. It, see, the thing about the black press was it covered local news. The reason Barnett and them had the national thing was, an international thing was to provide these newspapers with the broader stuff. But the black press covered the local news. Now, we don't have that. Well, I'm sorry, narrative. <laughs> now, with all of that stuff, as Ted Poston said, it's the first draft of history, y'all. What we just heard our tens do, we've all got stories. As, as she was talking, I'm thinking to myself, my mom was in uh, Columbus. I mean, wait, he was in Montgomery. Now I'm thinking, I got to go call Fire Rose to Ray and Hank Sanders, who are in, 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 in Selma, and say, well, man, I got to call people in Montgomery. I know they know him. And she said he was the first. So, narrative. Bring your story. And then, as you say, can you imagine a cartoon of him having that conversation with that cop? <laughs> Be careful. You might catch one. Now our children can wa- Oh, I know you can. That's why you said it. Let me stop. <laughs> this is all oh, man. Um, and, and we, you know, we open the floor to people who are members of narrative. We're going to give pref- preference and, and preference yes. to the folk who are, you know, bringing their, putting their five on it. I appreciate it. Let's uh, bring in somebody. I think you know this gentleman. Hey, brother. Do you know him? Oh man, that's my man, Gary. <laughs> one of the uh <laughs> lawyers in the South. Hey, we brother. What's going can on? What you up to? Can you hear me all right, man? Can you hear me all right? Yes, yes. You oh. got your book, man. Hold your book up. I gotta find my copies over here somewhere. This is the brother. I mean, we talked about months ago American terrorism. Y'all wanna know what's going on now? Y'all gotta get that book right there. 
How are you, man? I'm good, brother. It, it's such a pleasure. Wait, wait, wait. He got his edge up. Just for, I'm sure. I'm sure he got his edge up. He got his edge up just oh. for this. I'm oh, seeing. Yeah. <laughs> I said. He's a southerner. He's a southerner, right? Yeah, I've been I've been locked in the house like a wild man these last couple of weeks. I, I did go out, but I'll talk about that in a second. Man, what's going on, brother? A couple of things, man. Real quick, but my my mobile barber came and hooked me up, man, for y'all. So, oh, see, that's a whole nother thing. You ain't had to go. He could come to you. Man, but you um, good, man, it's, I'm so proud of what you're doing, brother. Um, I love we're you so much, man. Doing. Yes, yes, sir. Um, this is amazing, man. We talked about it so long ago, and yeah, see it come to fruition is it, awesome. Yes. But I'm not gonna, I'm gonna try to get through this as efficiently as possible, man, because I do have a question for you. So, I was trying to work on my second my second project, man, um, coming up, and I was supposed to be back in New Orleans, back home. COVID kicked off this rage and had some, you know, um, some issues at home with some, some folks getting sick, so I had to kind of push it back a little bit. But my mom. Right, my mom is an avid, avid researcher. So through the through the COVID lockdown, she hooked up with a couple of her cousins, and they got hooked on ancestry. Right, uh -oh. and they they have been building out our family trees. Yeah, and I remember uh, Professor Hunter last week mentioned that ancestry um, uh, genealogy is going to come up in narrative here. Uh, oh so yeah, I figured I asked this question of you. So um, my mother and her aunt, her cousins, had come across one of the most prominent citizens in New Orleans as being possibly a, a distant relative, right? And so um, this brother's name is Rivers Frederick, right? Um, born in 1874 in Pointe-Coupee Parish, a little west of Baton Rouge, um, at the tender age of 26, after growing up on a, on a, a plantation, Juilliard Plantation, decided to come to New Orleans and pursue his dream of being a physician. So in, in, uh, 18, in 1890, he came to Straight College, which is a forebear of Dillard Straight. University. No question. They merged with the University of New Orleans to go to medical school. He got out of Straight in 1894, enrolled in New Orleans Medical School um, that year. And two years later, though, he had to leave New Orleans. He had to break camp. So he broke camp from the plantation at 26, broke camp again because none of the, none of the hospitals in town would take any Black folks in to study, to let them study and train and learn. Yeah, 1896, he goes to the University of Chicago Medical School, um, didn't have enough money, had to start tutoring students. His family got the money together to keep him in, in medical school. Um, 1897, he graduated as the first African-American to, to get out of that school. 1898, he gets an internship, um, one of uh, 12 students out of that whole medical graduating class. He gets an internship. Um, at, a, at a clinic at the University of Chicago uh, Medical uh, Hospital, um, heads back to Point Coupee in 1899, right? So they sent them away to go to school, put sent the money up there, go get a bag of knowledge, come back home. Yeah. He gets back to, to Point Coupee, 1899, um, has a really integrated uh, uh, practice that he sets up. The, you know, Jed, Ma and Paul Clampett, you know, even accept him as a black a doctor coming to, to help them out, to come to fix them up. It was all good a week ago. You know what happens then? He goes to marry a white woman. Oh, hell no. <laughs> hell no. No, you, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Not no 1899 <laughs> Point Coupé Paris. And, and Point Coupé, man. I mean, that's right. where the rebellion went out. I would seem to me that there would be some very strict Jim Crow lines there. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, 1900 by 1900, he has to go to, um, I wanted to get it right. He has to go to uh, 
Hold on, let me look up here real quick. I'll give it to you real quick because I had it set up. Ah, give me a sec. Give me a sec. Um, he has to go to a, a Spanish Honduras at a, a small government hospital in El Roy time, Spanish Honduras. He catches uh, malaria, has to come back. to This time he comes back to New Orleans, sets up shop, starts to get his flowers. At that point, he becomes a chief of surgery at Flint Goodrich Hospital, chief of surgery at, uh, at uh, Goodrich Hospital. And he's teaching now at the places that he could he had to go to Chicago to go study. Now he's teaching at those places. He's getting his flowers. He's starting to become a real prominent citizen up until 1954 when he passed away. He spent like 40 years. Um, he's one of the distinguished uh, Dillard alumni guys. He passes away in 54, right, um, in New Orleans. Um, he, he, he dies in Goodrich Hospital. He's been chief of surgery of uh, 40 years there, right? But this is this none of this is the crazy part. The Right before he passed away in 54, though, one of his highlights was he was invited to host uh, Haile Selassie. When Haile Selassie, Haile Selassie made a state visit, he, he got the host. But this is the crazy part. This is the crazy part. Um, later on in his life, or posthumously after after he died, um, they had taken the, the snatched the name of Jefferson Davis off of a school, yeah, slapped his name on that high school or junior high school, junior high school in the Seven Water, New Orleans, uh-huh. um, uh, neighborhood high school. My uh-huh. parents went there. Both of my parents were from the Seven Water. They went when it was together. Fred. They went there. They went there when it was Reverend Frederick, right? Um, high school sweethearts, junior high school sweethearts. Um, and you know they're going through all of that. Um, fast forward to now, right? And I'll come back to, to that in a second. A couple of months ago, um, it was it was figured out that he wasn't necessarily a distant relative. Um, when he was born, oh. his, his parents had twelve siblings. I was going to ask, come, you, yeah, okay. yeah. So come to find out that my great great grandmother was one of those twelve siblings. So he'd be a great great. Uncle, yeah, right. Yeah, this is the crazy part. My parent, my mother, her siblings, all her cousins, my pa, his cousins, they people, they friends, all spent time at a junior high school named after my mom, great great uncle, and ain't none of them know about it. They had no clue. They didn't know about him. How did they know that was a people? How did that happen? I'm assuming now this is what they're tracking down because right, clearly the twelve didn't stay together. Right, and somewhere in the birth somewhere. order, do you know what you say? You know, no, I don't. And so that's getting me to me where I'm going with my question here in a second. So that, but that's just out there, right? That uh, the folks at Ancestry.com said that, yeah, my great great grandmother Marie F. Frederick was one of them first siblings, right? So that's out there. And then the, uh, the crazy part is my parents went to that school and they right. was all kind of at there and didn't know that that was my mom people. Wow. And then obviously what always happens to us, and we <laughs> kind of talked about it on Twitter, when the 16 or the I-10 rolled through that section of the seventh war, that school got knocked down. Of course. And so of I'm course. sitting here. Yeah, so I'm sitting there trying to figure all of this out. And so blessedly, right, um, the good sister Lisa Moore, who's the archivist at the um at the uh uh Amistad. Oh no, yeah, at the Amistad. She is at the Amistad on, yeah, on yeah. campus. Uh-huh. Um, she had granted me a, uh, an appointment to go in and sit through Rivers Frederick's papers. His papers right, are so at, a, at the Amistad. A lot of good black right. collections. Oh, excellent. So I'm going to try to go back and connect the dots. Was Marie Frederick adopted? When was that school built? When did they knock it down? All that good stuff. So here's my question, 
brother. Here's my question. I got through all of that to get to my question. I've been taking notes. That's why I'm looking down. (laughs) Here's my question, brother. After all those years and hours that we spent in the boxing, right? Mm -hmm. Charles L. Boxing. Yeah. Um, I had I had never got around to I'm gonna do you right quick. I never got around to reading this until oh yeah, black genie. No question. All the hours we spent there, I never got around see, to that, man. Y'all, y'all, hold up again, y'all see the title. Charles, Charles Bloxon, uh, we were at Temple University at the time. The Charles Bloxon Collection is one of the great repositories of uh, black art. It's one of the great black archives. Yeah, yep. he, he, you know, Charlie, you, you know, Gary, I worked for Charles Bloxon. That's like a second part yes, of me, man. So, but, and he's still, still kicking, still alive, still in Philly. That is Black Classic Press. Paul Coates strikes again. Yes, sir. <laughs> the man. And so, yeah, go ahead. Out of all those hours you spent with Doc, um, did he give you any tips on those of us in a similar vein and those of us, uh, other students who are going to take this up in narrative? Any tips? Any yeah, no, I, think, I think I think the, a brother who is really, and we can talk offline about, there's a brother here in D.C., James Morgan, mm-hmm. who is hardwired. He's a, uh, one of my former students. He's a Howard. But he's one of the brightest young genealogists that there mm-hmm. is out there, man. This guy's, I mean, but it sounds like with your family, y'all have already uh kind of built the foundation and structure. Mm-hmm. James, um, and you know, Bloxon talks about this too. A lot of black genealogists do, and then James is hardwired into the black genealogists, you know, they, they're very well organized. But I, mm-hmm. I'll connect y'all, man. In fact, I'll make sure cool. you get his number. But um, cool. the the professional associations, the social and civic organizations, like was he a Mason, Scottish Rite, or Prince Hall? Was he in a fraternity? Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta look through that. It didn't look like it. I think he was a a, a Phi Beta Sigma. I think he was. Okay, he, he may have been Sigma. Because, because I'm wondering. I mean, because even uh, Flint, Flint Goodrich, mm-hmm. um, you like we didn't we didn't talk about this earlier, but the brother, um, um, uh, Claude Barnett, Barnett was actually on the board of Providence which was oh, okay. the black hospital in Chicago. But I'm yeah. saying for Flint Goodrich, and I know that there was a hospital. Dillard had a hospital. Yeah. It was yeah. Goodrich, and, and the other one was, yeah. um, oh, man, I'm looking I'm looking for it. Wait, so Flint Goodrich, uh, I'm trying to there too. Yeah. Flint Goodrich I, and Sarah, Sarah Goodrich, and then it became, it merged into Flint Goodrich. Flint was a hospital, and Sarah Goodrich was a hospital. These Were, these were, the, these, were either of those the ones connected with Dillard? Yeah, they both were. Right? Okay. Uh, well, then, they both were, and they merged and became you, you know what's interesting, and, and Professor Hunter Karen, you you know you because you when you talk to Chris Gregory, Christian about his father, about Dick Gregory, mm-hmm. one of the things that they didn't have time to deal with in the um, documentary, I am Dick mm-hmm. Gregory. When Dick Gregory ran coast to coast, he also did a a fast, yeah, in Louisiana, and he was at that hospital. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah Dick. I mean, yeah. he bringing attention to these HBCU connected hospitals. I suspect I said all that to say that. Have you all begun to uh, look at or through anything at Dillard? That you know be, that, that's me going home. Okay, I, that's, that's how you got yeah. it. My man says that, you know, me and Dr. Beatty, you know, Mario, uh, that's his man. In fact, he was the graduate chapter advisor for Alpha when they were at Miami University of Ohio. Okay, okay. The, president, the president of Dillard, good brother. Right, So right, I mean, right. you know, If there's anything at Dillard, Walter, make sure his staff, make sure you have it. Cause I yeah. suspect that's where you're going to go. Cause I don't even yeah. know where those, where those records are preserved. Do they, does Amistad have either. them too? No. Nah. Well, I have to ask right now. All I know is they have the river Frederick papers, but they probably do. They probably yeah. do as I think about it. Cause they have yeah. a lot of that stuff. And it, at, Amistad was at Dillard at one point. 
Yeah, they well, moved it to Wayne for some reason. Well, I, the re- know, re- the resources, man. That's what that's yeah. the problem. The resources. Yeah. I mean, you know, these yeah. I don't think any of these repositories should be at white universities. Me either. Me but either. but I would rather them be there with committed than state. nowhere. Yeah, nowhere, right. right? So I mean, so I mean, people say, "Well, you where they gonna be?" You know, rather right. have them than not. I but, was, I was yeah. literally stuck down the street from a uh, dealer when I during Katrina. I was on the corner of a net humanity. You could, I was looking. I had a picture of me running across the street. Me and my cousins trying to pull leaves out of the street, not realizing levees blew and all of that kind of stuff. It's right across the street from a dealer um, extension center that they had. Oh man, so, now nah, yeah, they, yeah, they so they, I'll be there. No, I, yeah, I, I check that out. Another thing I would say is I, I'm assuming you all already got, I'm sure your aunties already got that. Your mom, your aunties got this. You know, in addition to the civic associations, the church, obviously. I mean, he yeah. must have been a huge pillar of, and I would also check, I'm sure the, you know they've already done this too, but um Chicago. Uh, yeah. If he's one. at UFC, and I'm thinking yeah. this was you say 1898. Yeah, he was in. Yeah, he got out 1899. I think if I look at my notes, uh, eight, no, 1897. 1897. How long he was the first AA? He was there for like two years, and then he had that two and a half year or uh, one and a half year um, uh, so they, internship. So they sent him north the year. Yeah, before. he left. Yeah, he left, he left the year before Plessy. I'm just yeah. wondering in terms of the 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 the, the, uh, the social structure and what's going on down there. Oh yeah. Did yeah. he? Did he? Did he dance on the color line? I mean, how the hell was yeah. he able to oh, never? Yeah, get- absolutely. I, absolutely. I mean, he was what we would call Creole. What my, okay, that's why. You know, where I got my fancy Negro last name from. He's a Creole like okay. that. Okay. See, that's why I was trying to figure yes, it out. Cause, yes, cause sir. Point Coopy, I mean, you know, when, when you say Point Coopy, I immediately think of the rebellion of enslaved Africans in right. the 18th century at Point Coopy, which was like huge. You know? Right. And so plantation culture. But for him to be in the city, then my question would become, where did his people come from? Because right. it feels yeah. like that he didn't he he wasn't born into uh, he wasn't born into poverty. Well, yeah, he was, and that that I you know I got so nervous when we started chopping it up with your brother. He was born to a sharecropper on a plantation, uh, Druliard Plantation, eighteen seventy four. So that means his people. Well, then again, I guess they probably already started tracking that in uh, in, in mm-hmm. ancestry. His mm-hmm. people are going to be in those plantation records. Yeah. In other words, if they're anywhere, they're going to be because then I'm assuming then that they had been there for some time, not just I would imagine so, not just into the Civil War, but maybe even right. generations before that. Probably. Oh, oh I'll tell you who I'll tell you who could be of some help, and I'll connect you with her too. In fact, she just uh, moved from Dartmouth. College to the University of Chicago. Um, no one of my former students, brilliant sister, uh Rashana Johnson. Okay. Rashana okay. Johnson. You, you mentioned her. Yeah, yeah Dr. I like the, I like to connect with her. Yeah, she's from New Orleans. Uh yes, sir. She, she did her dissertation in her first book. Yes, on, sir. Uh slavery and the slave board in New Orleans, and then the influence throughout southern Louisiana. Nice. So she nice. might be able to help you in terms of where to go for the records to trace nice. just take them all the way back. You might be able to get back to the boat, man. Hey, that's what's up. <laughs> Trying to get back to and, and Professor Hunter, just can I do one more thing? Man, more come thing. on. I'm coming. I'm coming. Real quick. <laughs> we real quick. It up like we back in. So real quick. Okay. Right, right, right. Real quick. I'm sorry. Real quick. So um, I never told you this, Greg. Um, but I was a freshman at FAM, and hmm. my, my 
our boy Eugene, Dr. Eugene Anderson, back oh, now, yeah. but back then, kept uh, telling me to come up to Temple, uh, you mm. know, come check it out. Got to come, got to check it out. He lasted with me at FAM for two weeks. I finally hooked up with him. He convinced <laughs> me to come on my spring break, right? So I got a pocket full of cheesesteak money, a pocket full of, you know, jazz club money going on, hitting up Warm Daddy, as I guess it was. Warm Daddy. Uh, no reggae question. club money, right? And yes, so I get, to, I get to Temple. We go, we go to classes in the fishbowl on the A4 Gladfelter. And, you know, we in the fishbowl, right? And you come walking in in a dashiki and black oh. boots and a blue jeans. Oh, and your yeah. Baseball cap to the back. That was the Tim you drop your book bag. <laughs> and you just set that thing off on fire. You, I don't even remember what you was talking about. No. My mouth was open half the time. I'm sitting no. in the back on spring break trying to act like I'm in college, no. right? I dropped my pen right. a couple times. I remember I that. Even think, I don't even think I dapped you off, though, because I rem- all I remember is getting to the elevator, running to the admissions office, and pulling the money out my pocket trying to transfer on the spot. What? But, brother, I love you. I, I thank love you, you for too, that. Brother. And that probably was either the fall or, or spring of 1992 or 1993. I don't remember. I think it was 93. Um, but I wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, um, man. From that the bottom of my class, heart. Is that so, class Kelly and all of them was in? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I remember that, brother. No, I thank you, brother, because you, <laughs> man, you have done, man, he went off, got that master's in black studies at Ohio State, then got the law degree in banana equation, intellectual warfare, and writing books, and doing this work. It's an honor to be your brother, man. It's man, an honor man. to be in this tradition, man. Hey, I'm glad you, glad you dropped in. For creating yeah. that space. Yes. Thanks. All right. Wow. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, That's crazy. Professor Garrick Faria. I'm going to make him a professor. Yeah, no, Garrick is, uh, Garrick, Garrick, them, them boys, them guys is in that class. That's my first class I taught at Temple after being at Ohio State. It's called Black Social and Political Thought. And they're everywhere now. Nate Thompson, who was assistant director down at Duke of the Mary Lee Williams Center. Uh, Kelly Harris, who is now the chair of African Studies at Seton Hall. Up there in the, all those guys were fresh uh, freshmen, sophomores. Dave Norman, who was a principal in the Bronx, high school principal. Norm Bayard, who's down his back, his, his youngest, his oldest son just went to college. He was a, a educator in, in Philadelphia. They were all 18, 19 year old. I wasn't that much older than them, but it just goes, man. But like, look, imagine how many people you're inspiring right now. To, yeah. to go do some things and well, we're together us, on this. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just saying all of us are challenged and cha- charged to, to inspire yes. you you know because of you showing up the way you show up as your authentic self all the time i love it um yeah. and and garrick thank you for um yeah. dropping those dropping those nuggets um and helping people understand you know what the process is and dr carr with the with the solutions we're going to be doing a lot of that because for us the stolen people we have to piece together our history and we got to know where we come from and we got to understand the people uh you know who gave birth to us generations that's why african ancestry is important as well dot com we we're we're doing some things with them so this is going to be fun uh, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, asking my mama questions you know, about her grandmother and I'm learning so much, you know, but that's the work that we are, we have to do for the next generation. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I got a, I got a, um, there was a, a, a brother who, uh, mentioned, um, she car took, uh, took, uh, their granddaughters, took his granddaughters to the National Museum of African Art, um, a couple of days ago, maybe yesterday, and uh, put on Twitter because we had talked about it last week, and put on Twitter that 
said my granddaughter said what stood out to her was the black tablet showing a mark for every day Nelson Mandela was in jail. Mm. Yeah, that's from that black. He there's a there's an exhibit there called Heroes, and there's this whole side of the wall is black panels, and you just think it's black panels, and the closer you get, you see what looks like little rice marks. You say, oh, this is interesting, and then you get up on it, and there the panels take up one side of the wall, and you think, huh, isn't? And then you see the plaque. Each one of them little marks is the day that Mandela spent in jail. And so I'm sure she did. <laughs> and when you step back and look at it, it looks like the stars in the sky, just straight. And then they're little black panels. I'm talking about wall-sized black panels going down there and, and little rice marks. And when you see that, it puts in perspective what we are talking about. And it puts in perspective that, in the words of Huey Freeman, Everybody in jail is not Nelson Mandela. So we're not talking about the trial of R. Kelly today. If you remember the R. Kelly episode, what we are doing is distinguishing that some sacrifices were made because some people decided I'm going to be on the side of justice for our people. And that doesn't make everybody in prison guilty. It doesn't make them all political prisoners, but it does mean that many of the people who have sacrificed, and we think about that during Black August, because there are people still in jail who have many more of those little marks than Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. like 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 Mumia Abu-Jamal, like uh, Jamil Alamin, these the Russell Maroon Schultz, we have to remember them. And so, but but I did, but I did make it down there only for about an hour. And I should, I want to show y'all this is because I know you um, you know, back to school, they were back to school. So reading and writing, we know we began that. And people can dispute it. They can talk about Mesopotamia. Fine. We can get into that or we can have that discussion. It won't be an argument. We'll have a discussion and narrative. But one of the more recent traditions of writing tradition, just like we're writing now, many of us with the English language, using the English language, writing in this 26 character script that we have. You know, there were a lot of Africans writing in Arabic because of the influence of Islam. And in that exhibit that I finally got a chance to go and see and i showed y'all the exhibition catalog i don't know what i did with it right now but it's not important um the exhibition catalog for oh here it is caravans of caravans of gold fragments and time that's mansa musa the map they have the map down there on display um in the smithsonian but i want to end with this because um i really wanted to see these there was a brother in the 16th century named ahmed baba um, Dr. John Clark used to always talk about Ahmed Baba, A H M A D, so Ahmed, I guess it would be, and sometimes you see it with an E, uh, Baba Al Timbuktu, Ahmed Baba of Timbuktu. That's the short title of his name, it's a longer name. He wrote so many different uh books, and more than 60 books are attributed to him, a lot of it in jurisprudence, and so. This is something that you don't get a chance to see a lot. It's in Northwestern University. There was a scholar named John Hunwick who's written a lot. In fact, I finally got my hands on this. Um, this is one of the volumes, Arabic Literature of Africa, the writings of Western Sudanic Africa. John Hunwick compiled this. This is a compendium. But he did another book on T- um, Timbuktu and the Mali Empire that has the actual documents in it. So I've read Ahmed Baba, who's one of the most learned scholars of his time. And in that exhibit, I got a chance to see, this is actually from the exhibition catalog. Those are pages from Ahmed Baba's, one of his treatises there. And they're on display now at the Smithsonian. So I know your granddaughters saw these. This is a treatise on ethics. He wrote one on the, on ending 
the slave trade. This is in the 16, uh, in the 1580s and 1590s. And as we go back to school, and there are a number of different books. I think I've showed y'all the manuscripts of Timbuktu. There are a couple of very big books on the subject. And uh, Hunwick's book, I, I couldn't dig that one out, but this is a good one if you want to get it. The Meanings of Timbuktu, which, which talks a lot about what that, what that place was about. And this little one, 333 Saints, A Life of Scholarship at Timbuktu. The reason I bring this up, particularly for you young people, I'm talking about y'all who were in kindergarten or going to first grade, second grade, third grade. And it moves me so much to know that some of y'all are watching. When you go in there to school, you're not going alone. You are not going alone. You have Artense's father. You got Professor Hunter's father. You have my father. You got every ancestor that we just heard Gary Faria talk about. You got Akmi Baba. And the tradition, when you pick up that pen and write, and when you put your fingers on that keyboard and type, the spark that comes out of your mind through your fingers on that page and on that screen, you invented that. And if anybody try to tell you different, you send them to us. Or better yet, you ain't even got to handle it. You can handle it the way our tense daddy said. You better hope you don't run into somebody like me because I'm here to set the world right back up where it's supposed to be. So y'all go on to school and do what you got to do. Understand you're not looking to anybody else for your validation. Your ancestors have already validated you. I'm gonna stop with that. <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> I love you. I love, I, love, I love you too. <laughs> All right. Well, we won't be live next week, but we'll have something because uh, it's the commitment to have something at noon on Saturday. So we'll do something. And Baba Greg, uh, excuse me, Baba uh, Dick Gregory. Uh, Baba Dick his, Gregory. Well, that's they call him that too. Baba Greg. The fourth, the fourth uh, anniversary of his passing. In oh. And it's the nineteenth. Uh, so you know, we're, we're gonna keep having this discussion and. Um, we have a lot of, of work to do over the narrative side, but I wanted to say thank you thank to you. you. Thank you to everybody, wherever you are in the world. We got folk from as far as Poland and Africa. I saw Barbados this morning, Bermuda, Barbados. all of these places. Um, and let's say a special prayer for our folk in Haiti. Please. Um, IT. Um, yeah, y'all have the character and um, the, the strength to get through all of this, even at 7.2. <laughs> It just says 7.2 Richter scale uh, earthquake. They can survive this. Um, and they will because they've done, they've survived worse. So let me just say thank you again. I love you. I'll see you in the narrative streets. I love, you, I love you. I see you in the narrative streets. Be safe, y'all. Oh, yeah. Love you. <laughs>